Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Cade Deem. Cade is a political and systems theorist who was an early contributor on the messaging app Signal, as well as the chief design officer at Spider Oak. He went on to lead design and security research at Tactical Tech, and most recently founded the New Design Congress, where he currently researches the intersection of digital infrastructure, politics, and society. We'll be talking about digital regionalism, methods for building more ethical systems, and ways to challenge assumptions about how we build technology by imagining alternative histories. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Cade Deem. I'm here today with Cade Deem. Welcome, Cade. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, so we're going to be talking about some, uh, some somewhat serious things today about technology and politics. Uh, and so I just want to start off with maybe a, a little bit of a more silly question, which is, uh, are you a dog? <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the internet, yes. On the internet, uh, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Because I feel like half the videos that I have seen of you talking on the internet, you have a incredibly well-rendered uh, is it a Shiba dog? Is that a, is it is it? a Shiba dog? Yes, yeah. excellent. Uh, and, and that is how you are speaking to the world. So <laughs> I'm just going to imagine you as that uh, Shiba dog today as we talk um, uh, with with the gaming <laughs> headset on too. That's an important uh, copy. Yeah. You'd need it. Like it's the whole. There's a whole fit, right? Like the whole point is to uh, look as internet as possible. I guess. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Was well, is there a story behind that avatar? Or sort of how did you uh, how did you come up with that? <laughs> Well, I didn't. I didn't make it. It's like a, actually a a very. Um, it's a default um, avatar for a program called FaceRig, uh. and they. It's a really lifelike, realistic Shiba Inu. But there's a story behind it, which we can get into a little bit later about um, using it as a kind of response against the flatness of interfaces, especially when engaging with people online. Mm. Um, and then also, yeah, there's also like a digital identity component to it, which is really interesting. But it's been, I've actually taken meetings with funders and oh with um, academics as as the Shiba before to mixed results. Often good, but sometimes uh, a little bit awkward. But, you <laughs> I <know>. love it. <laughs> it reminds me of the video because it's you're doing it intentionally, but I think there's a great video online of... Uh, it was like a lawyer in a case where he could not turn off his dog. Uh, I remember that. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's dozens of those, and it's just yeah, it's uh, the whole the whole interface of these like um, group chat, group seminar, webinar things are hilariously bad. It's great. Yeah, well, that's good. So I, you know, maybe we can start off by um, you telling us just a little bit about your sort of. Uh, current project. I believe it's the New Design Congress. Yeah, so the the New Design Congress is a fiscally sponsored project of a group called Simply Secure, which is a US-based nonprofit that uh, tries to bring security to everybody. I've known that team for quite a while. And at the end of 2019, they'd they'd seen and heard about some of the stuff that I had been working on and asked if I had plans for some of this research that I'd been doing. Um, particularly into things like design ethics, mm-hmm. and so I put yeah I put together this small organization, and the New Design Congress is a research organization that frames an understanding of digital infrastructure of all sorts, from the interface all the way down to the silicon and its and its its um, origins, 
as expressions of power, whether it's mm -hmm. power that has been consolidated by its materialization, so the actual material existence of these systems and interfaces, basically consolidating or expressing power, or conversely, the critique of those systems and the attempts to organize alternatives to certain kinds of systems as expressions of power and politics as well. And I think this is an important highlight because although we collectively understand that, when we come to instances where we should be evaluating that quite significantly, a lot of times we kind of default back to a cause and effect relationship in terms of how we frame the interaction between digital infrastructures and societies. And so I don't want to get too caught up in social media, but a really simple one that everyone will be aware of would be the time where Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook was grilled in the US Congress for their role in electoral disinformation. And that entire framing was uh, both in the media and on the floor, like in the actual hearings, was framed as essentially um, Facebook causes disinformation and thusly that has an outcome of electoral destabilization. And the reality, of course, is that it may accelerate that or collect these things, but ultimately it's, it, it's, it's not being framed as what it is, which is essentially expressions of power by different groups using Facebook as a medium, for example. Interesting. Hmm. And how does that, uh, so like if I'm trying to think of uh, how that interacts with some of the stranger examples that happened there, uh, so I know, for example, you had big groups, right? You know, you had uh, different parties trying to influence things there, but you also had just people uh, trying to make money in the Philippines, right, by uh, kind of creating disinformation. So how does that fit into that framework? Essentially, it's, it's the material conditions that people find themselves in mm -hmm. are the driving forces for the actual activities that people engage in and then also like the... The, the, the potential outcome. So in the case of Facebook, the by framing it as a cause and effect discussion, what happens is we don't then, we get to sidestep the deeper issues of structural failings, distrust in institutions, widening social inequalities, things like that. And so, you know, when you say, for example, mm. that disinformation shops are funded by um, different states, but then there's also the smaller operations working out of um, particularly the global south and places like that. It is, it is essentially the way to understand it, I think, is to understand it primarily as an economics problem first. Mm. Um, and then the understanding how the economics then mixes with a sense of political acceleration in order to get that outcome. So Facebook, in that example, acts as an accelerant to the combination of circumstances that people find themselves in. Interesting. Well, this is great stuff. So uh, without, uh, maybe we can go a little bit high level before we dive into uh, too much here. So I think, you know, we're going to be focusing on a few different things today. Um, and one is definitely going to be this sort of uh, technology and infrastructure and sort of power and politics and how those all mix together. Um, it's been interesting to sort of see my own reaction to, to watching some of your stuff on that because I don't know why, but like when I first encountered some of these sort of like all politics is design or, or these different sort of things, I find myself like rolling my eyes initially. There's some sort of like resistance to that. And then as, as I as I watch more of it, I'm like, no, nope, this is right. <laughs> it's just been really interesting to sort of track my reaction. Um, but I definitely look forward to talking about all this kind of stuff. You have this concept of California ideology and everything. 
so we're going to go through that. And then also, uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to, to have you maybe describe a little bit this um, alternative forking uh, that you've talked about, because I feel like that is like a really useful way of thinking through some of these things. So, yeah, that's a good question. And it's a, part, it's a, it's a foundational part of the New Design Congress. So when we look at systems, uh, and my background personally is a, a combination of a digital designer and a digital security researcher, what that has given me personally is this ability to kind of see systems from the human side and also from the information security and the flow of information side. And alternative forking within this context is a way to give us permission as an organization to look back through history and find expertise from the past that critiques some of the outcomes that we see today or some of the circumstances that we see today, and then explore or fork, if you like, uh, some of the concepts that were not explored during those timeframes. Mm -hmm. So one, one simple example would be uh, in the 70s, well, digital identity itself is, a, is one of our core focuses. And uh, digital identity, the, the computerization of, of the uh, aspects of a person uh, des designed to sort of uniquely identify them in some way has been around since the mid-1800s. Uh, and of course, in the 20th century, it has like a bad, very bad set of experiences, uh, the most notable being that uh, IBM partnered with the Nazis and built the biggest digital identity system in the world at the time. But there's, in the 70s, after that, there was a, a huge amount of um, pushback against uh, digital identity in California from students who rejected the academic transcripts they had being digitized at UC Berkeley, I think. And that became like a part of the civil rights movement towards the end of the 1970s. And that's really interesting because uh, today, if you look at digital identity as a system, everything from the biometric passports that we have all the way through to the username and password and user profile photo of, of, of a Twitter account, everything, that entire system. It's based on a handful of uh, very simple assumptions that have over a generation and a half moved from a subject of uh, ideological battleground uh, as part of the civil rights movement to essentially a, a an established norm and an established fact. But of course, at the same time, there's a range of issues with digital identity, one of them, of course, being social engineering attacks. And so what alternative forking does is it looks at digital identity and says, okay, if we imagine that digital identity is, is not the answer, the way that we see it today, uh, alternative forking allows us to go back, look backwards in history, find these interventions like the 1970s pushback, and then say, okay, so at this point where it was being seriously criticized, what were the criticisms and were there alternative proposals for these systems that were, for whatever reason, be it for economic reasons or social reasons or cultural reasons, not explored. And so, yeah, the idea then is to either prototype or conceptualize or both these alternative forks as part of the work that we do. Interesting. Can you give any examples of what some of those things were? Like what were some of the critiques that were being offered and was there any sort of, because I find it even hard for myself to sort of think about how those things could be different, just, you know, easily because uh, of how uh, established of kind of grammars and conventions they are. So is there any examples you can give me there? Yeah. So there's, there's a ton of extremely interesting research that's been done on this. The first paper is by Steve Labar, and it's uh, 1994, and it's called Do Not Fold, Mutilate, or Spindle, A Cultural Hint History of the Punch Card, which looks into 
essentially these these topics. So the history of uh, how digital identity basically formed its role in the U.S. Census, for example, in the late 1800s and all the way up to the 1970s. The critiques are, are, are you know, pretty straightforward and actually exist in real time. The most damning two that I can see, one is the the role of digital digital identity within uh, consumer systems basically playing this major role of atomizing people. Um, and there's some work that we've done uh, with uh, very, very virtual reality heavy people around understanding dif the difference between people uh, operating in virtual reality spaces with the right peripherals, the right VR headsets and things like that. <laughs> and how uh, when you introduce certain kinds of pseudonymous or anonymous people into those systems that are running a keyboard and mouse, the it, the chances that those people will act uh, in a trolling matter actually is substantially higher. In fact, it's very rare to find someone that that um, in a VR headset who's willing to troll um, and otherwise harass people in a virtual reality space. It's not impossible, of course, but it's significantly rarer than a keyboard or mouse. And that's this is related to the the role of digital identity and how uh, separate how it's separated from us, which is one of the core arguments of this. Um, there's a deeper argument that I'll get into about this. It's a little bit philosophical in a moment, but the other, the other um, main critique, of course, is from a digital security perspective, and kind of looking at how uh, the whole surface of social engineering attacks, which is remains the most lucrative, aside from say ransomware attacks, which of course many have a social engineering component to them as part of that attack. Um, how much of that relies on the failings of digital identity? The uh, the ease in which it's possible to uh, to uh, fish someone or impersonate or catfish someone, the the sense of connecting authentication services to a publicly facing digital identity of some kind, all of these kinds of systems which we consider to be normal today, uh, are actually like deeply insecure and have have caused countless untold amounts of economic damage. Even just if if you look at it purely from a sort of capitalist perspective, it's quite incredible that these systems actually exist, given how much they lose um, the economies around the world. The deeper, yeah. the deeper, if you don't mind me just getting please, a little please. bit deeper into this. Yeah. So the deeper thing here is that um, Descartes, the, the idea of the like Cartesian, uh, the idea of like rationalist identity, this, this dualism of digital identity, this, the way in which we see ourselves, which is born from Western ideas of, of society and presentation kind of states, I think, therefore I am. And I think we can kind of extend that and say, I authenticate and I curate myself and therefore I am. And that's when, when those systems kind of, when you look at those systems, um, it's actually at odds with how we, his, how we socially see each other. You know, a person in, is a person through other persons. We are not necessarily just who we say we are and how we project ourselves um, in, and in a digital system, that's the only way in which we can do that, whether involuntarily, again, through a biometric passport or voluntarily through a social media network and the curatorial nature of that. But we're also, um, most importantly, our identity is formed from how others see us. And what we don't have today is we don't have systems of recognition. We have systems of authentication, um, but we don't have these systems of, of recognition or uh, things like that. And so... Yeah, there's a, a range of things we can talk about on this topic. Yeah, there's, uh, but I think you know, digital identity is a great starting point because it's, yeah, it's it's, a, it, it's an immediate principle that I think has some extremely interesting threads to follow in, from a research perspective. That's great. 
I, I was laughing a little bit because we, um, are you familiar with uh, the philosophy of Heidinger at all? Yes. Yeah, because it was um, uh, Nicholas Paul Bryceowitz, one of our first guests, recommended that, and I've been diving through it recently, and it seems so relevant to how we think about mm-hmm. your. Ta- yeah, you're talking about sort of the relations between uh, identities and people online, and sort of thinking about how we're just embedded in these spaces, right? It's actually such a narrow perspective, um, which also the, the 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 bit that doesn't make sense for me is is how deeply. Uh, even even it is it is definitely a very Western concept, and I mean that very deliberately. It's it's a it comes from the same machineries that brought a certain kind of entrepreneurialism and uh, and, and expansion mindset to a variety of things. The whole idea of you know the Californian ideology, which you mentioned, we're going to talk about a little bit, is is based on this form of uh, one of the things that it's desired for is the ability to curate oneself inside um, a space in which one entirely controls, like this combination of um, of the ability to see oneself and the and the ability to build the space in which one sees themselves but the I think what's really interesting is even within the West itself historically um, if you look back even before um, uh, colonialism there's class systems in 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 Europe essentially in Western Europe that are also not basically formed on rational identity and in, and in fact you know, as unjust as they are, are based on society's perspectives and opinions of you. And Mm. so this idea of the rationalist identity system, the one in which you curate yourself and present that curation in a tightly controlled way, whether or not, once again, you do it deliberately or whether it's observed and your identity is built through your observation but curated through yourself, um, that identity speaks on your behalf in this rationalist kind of way. And it's a it's an extremely new concept, and I think it's a pretty interesting failing of digital systems today. Interesting. So to try to understand further, is that just like like I have a Facebook account or I have a personal website, and I am sort of showing the world who I am through what that is designed as and, and curated as? Um, like what would be? I'm trying to like my mind is trying to come up with what is like alternatives. Is it like somebody else well, is picking seen, what's on my profile, or you know, it's being you've seen the alternative. You, yeah. you've, you've seen the alternative. I mean, you built all space VR, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Like your, like the alternative is that feedback loop, right? It's the alternative. One could argue that the um, that the that you know the role of entering VR where you select and build an avatar is wholly rationalist, but to me, that's more similar to something like preparing. You know yourself in in a presentational way when you get up in the morning. Uh, mm. There's there's very little difference there except you have a greater a, a degree of fidelity in how you then shape that because you can shape the body as well as the the apparel. And but most importantly, the these spaces, whether it's alt space VR or VR chat or something like that, um, has a critical feedback loop because once you see other people, um, you're now having a a you know you're seeing you're seeing yourself as a person as a person through persons. And this, this, <laughs> the, the the best critiques I can possibly give are actually, or the, the most modern one I can think of, even within embedded inside the um, the the rational identity, is one of say the furry fandom. You know, mm. so are you, are you familiar with the furry fandom? Uh, just I, a little bit. I, I please explain for for those. Yeah. yeah. So so the furry fandom is a international subculture uh, that traces its roots back to the early '90s, although it, there's examples even earlier of it. Um, Essentially, it's the, anth- the the embracing of like an anthropomorphized animal as like an aesthetic and a personal identity. So it's the kind of people 
um, if you've been online for a while, you'll definitely know who they are. They wear fursuits. They have like conventions. There's like furry artists. There's an entire set of, there's an entire international subculture around this. And what's really fascinating, if you spend any time researching that subculture, what you realize is that it is actually playing with these identity paradigms, even within the identity system, the rationalist identity system. So these, the subculture is deeply online. <laughs> it's deeply online. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, can, it can manifest itself and, and take control of um, platforms and repurpose them the way that they, the community needs them. They build their own infrastructure, all of these sorts of things. But most importantly, um, uh, when someone develops a fursona, so a, a, an animal persona, um, often yeah, fursona, yeah, it's a great word. Um, oftentimes, these people will then um, uh, have other people react to that. So other people will either, you know, one one major part of that economy is the the commission of of, of uh, portraits of one's fursona. Um, from different artists, which is like this manifestation of exactly mm. what we're talking about. The, the part like developing this identity, which starts off as a curated identity, but then it's filtered through the, the, the subculture. Right. And so it's this, it's this atomization in particular and how we've built systems and peripherals and things like that, that I think plays its major role, but also the complete lack of, um, deeper understanding of this tension from the broader systems and digital platform developer spaces. Interesting. So I'm still, you know, I just want to make sure I understand before continuing. So is it the sort of um, the distinction that you're drawing between sort of my my curated LinkedIn profile or something like that, and my um, <laughs> if I had a uh, persona, uh, is it the sort of um, like the specific cultural filters and like the ability for it to be sort of like re-reflected in different ways and sort of like the other dynamics around it that are sort of at play in the community? Is that is that kind of what you're pointing at? Well, yeah, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that those systems don't exist in a lot of con like in a lot of spaces. So. Mm -hmm. The question, the, the question that we're trying to answer here is, okay, what if you took the feedback loops, the social feedback loops that exist inside the furry community and then reflected them into digital security? What does huh. that look like? What does a system look like um, when it's based on social feedback loops rather than trying to authenticate someone based on uh, a user avatar or the example of, you know, trying to train people not to click on links even if they come from people who's avatar you recognize these kinds of issues right so it's it's really that the, the as i said like it, it it is how um in the pursuit of a particular kind of philosophy and and world building around what the what the internet should look like uh, and what digital societies should look like it's that what what's missing from that are those that those social feedback loops interesting huh um, just to uh, uh, just touch on it before we go on, I, I was curious to hear you were talking about sort of the uh, civil rights pushback in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, was there like an example or two of sort of like what people were protesting against, or essentially dehumanization? Um, mm -hmm. The the idea of it, it's a really fascinating concept because it's a, it's a it's a core of what we're talking about here, which is that once you they're 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 they're, they're critique essentially and I don't want to speak for the sure. the protesters themselves but one of the critiques of uh, a serialized academic record is that it then makes it much easier for a faculty or university governance to make decisions uh, where the humanity has been stripped from the the students who the decisions are being made about mm -hmm. 
And that's like a core critique of that. And I think that's really fascinating because like that's that desire for data and desire of serialization is inherent in a lot of governance systems and was back then too, but like definitely now. And yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of second and so, uh, second and third order effects of that. Like the, I don't have a good example of this now. I'm sure we could find one and put it in the show notes or something. But there's an example of even just the critiques of things like Microsoft Excel and how that has yeah. completely warped um, the understanding of how to even negotiate things like restructurings, for example, in companies. So as a person who's tasked with leading a restructuring inside a corporation, be it large or small, an over-reliance on a tool like um, Excel all but ensures that you um, drastically, uh, you're at great risk of, of absolutely messing up your restructure for a variety of reasons. And, and one of those is because um, that focus of the relationship based on information and economic flow rather than understanding the human relationships right. associated with that and the feedback loops that a social, feed, a social system gives us, um, that all but ensures that you're basically putting whatever company that you're working with at, at, at great peril, at least socially. And I think a really, just a really sort of final point on that is essentially that we have... Uh, as part of our evolutionary history as a, a species, regardless of the region that you uh, are born into or you're descended from, we have built over time systems for understanding trust and building social relations that could that were very complex and allowed us to basically forge all sorts of um, built environments and systems outside of ourselves. And it's it remains both fascinating and deeply um, disappointing to me that our digital systems are so terrible at capturing the social fabric of that. Um, Interesting. Even even the the, the 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 even digital security itself focuses more on the safety of software devices and connections rather than like focusing with any degree of uh, competency around the security of relationships. Yeah, between two or more people. Yeah, huh. I uh, just on a previous point that you were saying there, I I, um, I, I found it kind of uh, interesting because the one of the things that I've bristled at uh, is when you're talking about sort of like Excel, uh, but there was like a couple times where I would hear a project manager talk about like resources or like resource allocation yes. when they were talking about human beings and who was going to be on what project. Um, and it's funny because I did, you know, I got a little irritated and I, you know, I had, you know, some compassionate conversations with him about, you know, why they shouldn't talk that way. And I, and I think that that's important. But the thing that I'm thinking about now is, well, maybe I should have looked a little bit more upstream on sort of why, like, you know, what in our tools were leading them to, to do that. And you can't always change every single tool that you're using on something like that. But it does seem like an interesting question to go upstream of, of what is leading to some, somebody referring to people as resources or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. User is another term that's mm. uh, absolutely egregious way of describing people How, for the same reasons. Like, you know, what would be a, sometimes these things are simple as just like a, a script change. Is there an alternative that you would offer or is it just people? See, this is where it gets really interesting because um, the only way I think that you can um, alter, offer an alternative term is to contextualize it hmm. and contextualize the people who are meant to be your users. And of course that becomes really interesting because now we're talking about complexity inside systems and this you know, everything from, gosh, everything that we've learned from, everything that we've learned from the early, uh, 
human interaction designers, uh, the second wave of those people, Steve Krug, Don't Make Me Think, the book about basically decomplexifying systems to the point where um, anybody can uh, make a choice and the choice is mindless and they don't need to read anything. Um, all, all of that industry, which has helped to scale things to an impressive sort of global network of systems, um, none of them actually, all of them, are, oh, sorry, all of these systems fall prey to this particular issue, which is as soon as you add that complexity in and you de and then you don't address that complexity yourself, you end up with terms like um, human resources or users and things like that. And of course, that immediately um, reduces the feed, like the social feedback loop. Instead of it being from a digital security perspective, now we're talking about it from a, a systems design perspective, right? So mm -hmm. the, your inability to grapple with the complexities or the desire to scale as far and wide as possible. Those systems, you, unless unless you seek to, I guess, um, build practice that that embraces complexity and tries to design language around it instead mm -hmm. of sticking with things like users, you then end up with the next sort of wave of tools. So, in the same way as you were talking about resources, <laughs> there's also things like use cases, user stories, um, this sort of speculative way of designing systems, which mm -hmm. you know leads to all sorts of um, ridiculous, precarious outcomes as a result. Yeah, I uh, uh, let's move this forward in the conversation because I think it's relevant <laughs> to this. Is I saw you have. Uh, there was a little bit of one of your videos about uh, the issues with user personas and how that leads into user stories yes. and sort of where that leads us wrong. Can, can you speak to that for a minute? Yeah. So the first piece of work that I put out um, was called On Weaponized Design. And that piece mm -hmm. is about the defining a system or an interface that harms users whilst performing exactly as it was supposed to. So unlike dark UX patterns, which rely on bad um, decisions being made, unethical decisions being made by designers to make users do things they might not otherwise consent to or choose to do or act against their own interests. Just as Weaponized an example, design, would be like uh, opt-in versus opt-out checkboxes or, or Yeah, or like right. every single consent screen for the GDPR like with, that buries <laughs> the, <laughs> the OK very far away and then puts the save all in a bright green button that makes it seem like it's the positive choice. Yeah, things right, like that. Yeah, or, okay. or unsubscribing from, from major newspapers, for example, where you have to go through these dark UX patterns in order to actually cancel a subscription. Those right. sorts of things. And so you're drawing yeah. a contrast with that, right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, weaponized design is a system that through like team apathy, uh, through the uh, sort of aligned uh, weaponization, so a team deploys something and then some other part of a team, like another department, uses it in a bad way, mm. or through these like weird trade-offs that happen, usually through complexity, you end up with a system that is like harming people uh, without actually, you know, doing anything wrong. Simple example would be the introduction of Apple's iCloud photo backup system and how that then immediately led to a few months later, or a year later, to the big iCloud photo hack in which a number of um, prominent women and a lot of people who, a lot of women who weren't so prominent, just everyday people, um, had their accounts fished um, or brute forced mm -hmm. and then had um, their personal photos leaked. And of course, the issue here, of course, the weaponized design isn't in the hacking. The weaponized design is in the, the desire for, <laughs> for iCloud to be as simple as possible. And how do you do that? Well, you just make a single decision without really telling the user exactly what you're doing uh, to 
upload and completely do an indiscriminate backup of every single phone to a storage provider. And so, you know, the subtlety in that fallout of what happened with the iCloud photo hack is that um, it wasn't just about the the violation of people's privacy, of, of the privacy of these women, but also the, the fact that um, in many cases, almost all cases, they had no idea it was happening mm. and probably wouldn't have said yes to their um it's it's an it's an arrogant assumption to assume that they're going to say yes to you to do something like that. And so in the in the desire to frame people as users, to have use cases, user stories, things like that, the complexity of 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 people's lives is completely erased yes. in that system. And yeah. and you see this time and time again. It's like it's not just it's not just in you see it everywhere. You see it in um in machine learning algorithms and you see it in uh you're beginning to see it in industrial design now because industrial design is beginning to adopt these ideas of, uh, in a very serious way of, of use cases and user stories. Essentially, a user story is a speculation. Um, it might be backed up by some kind of research, but it's a speculation designed. The whole reason why you're engaged in, in developing and, and, and fleshing out and defining user stories and use cases is because you're trying to grapple with complexity um, in a way that's cost-effective. And we, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I think we've shown in the last 20 years in particular that it just doesn't work. Huh, interesting. I did laugh because it's the, um, it, the, I think one of the challenges is, is that the, the user stories and the personas, they, they all have to be acceptable to say in a business meeting, right? <laughs> like the, it was yeah. the, the same issue with the, um, uh, you were showing the your year in review on Facebook, right? And the sort of, uh, just is just absolute sort of dystopian thing of these bright, uh, colorful frames being contrasted with these images of people's houses that were on fire or children that had died, um, right? And it was that the, the, that every single sequence of images in the year of review that was presented at a meeting was a bright, happy, cheerful one. Uh, and I'm sure all of the ones that presented at the Apple meetings were not nudes that people had taken on their cell phones. Right. right. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's yeah. It's it's such a these are clearly examples of, of organizational attempts to grapple with complexity. And what has won out in these, in these discussions, in, in the ideology battle for digital systems, has been uh, an attempt to dodge the need to grapple with complexity. And you see this, I think, digital security is sort of second, it's second wave. So, you know, if you imagine the rise of the, 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 the trade war between the United States um, Department, uh, the State Department, maybe producer Nick can just double check on this. Pretty sure it's that the State Department in the United States came up against Phil Zimmerman to, uh, when he developed PGP, pretty good privacy encryption, and mm -hmm. tried to prosecute him over uh, and basically classified encryption as a weapon, like as an arms uh, technology. And like, once that had been fought and PGP and encryption won, the next step in that was to secure the internet. And why was the internet not secure? Well, it's because people like Steve Krug, Dominald Norman, the, the, the people who had made their careers on the back of, of, of embracing the desire to scrub complexity, um, had done so at the expense of, of digital security itself. And thusly, the, the physical safety of people who who are subjected to these systems. And so then, of course, that leads to, you know, everything from the move to, you know, 
secure the internet, let's encrypt uh, as a cert manager, for example, is a direct descendant of the failings of, of these systems. The United Nick is telling me that it's the United States Customs Service that did that. Yeah. Interesting. So basically the federal government in the United States went up against um, PGP because they couldn't backdoor it and they couldn't crack it. And um, that basically led to a, a, a fundamental lack of digital security for a number of years inside of, um, inside of um, the, the mid-90s. And, and they went after him because he was uh, allegedly violating the Arms Export Control Act by having digital security. That's interesting. Well, I, you know, I'll say, you know, at Reroute, we always try to, uh, you know, stay sort of uh, solutions oriented. And so, you know, if we look at sort of these issues with like personas and user stories, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like this is kind of the uh, established wisdom is how you design your products. Um, do you have thoughts on kind of how we can approach this differently or what other sorts of things we can do? Yes. I do actually, and I'm, it's exciting that we're talking about this now because it's only recently that I have ideas about this. Oh, awesome! <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, so we, I'm really excited to say that one of the first areas of of complexity that we're kind of challenging is around digital identity. It's why I've been talking about it so much mm-hmm, today, mm-hmm. and we've just finished a um, a collaboration with a decentralized and or a a local first engineering group, local first being like a group that looks and explores at like the relationships between interfaces and systems and data control. They're a group called Ink and Switch. Ah, nice. And they, we, we've basically been prototyping um, some of the ideas around digital identity. And so the two, there's two approaches to complexity. One is well, basically one approach to complexity, which is to acknowledge and get rid of it. And the way, in like a meaningful way, like reduce the complexity before you like reduce scale. And I don't mean reduce complexity in a sense of like, I don't mean it in a sense of like the way that Donald Norman and Steve Krug and these kinds of people talk about. I'm talking about reducing it by reducing the number of moving parts in the system itself. And so in the digital identity case, a really interesting way of doing that would be like, well, what if you removed digital identity from a system entirely? And then how would you then build a secure digital system in which uh, a phishing attack is almost impossible, where the idea of, um, of understanding who's talking to who based on the, the profiles of people, the, the social graph is impossible to produce. Um, and so we've just finished a prototype of something like this. We're going to be releasing a series of publications. They're putting together an engineering um, publication and on our side at New Design Congress. Um, We are putting together a couple of pieces around the politics of of digital identity and also a more sort of um, uh, philosophical critique of of digital identity from its definition of, you know, the rationalist identity system and introducing that as a concept. But yeah, so one of of the ways in which you do that is you reduce complexity of the system itself. And then the other way of doing it is to essentially create systems that um, are regionalized. And the idea of embracing regionalism and dividing up a system around regions that are not necessarily geographic, but can be, but also breaking up the complexity into very discrete regions and then uh, going all in on solving for the specific needs of those regions. Those are the two sorts of ways that I would start that. So the regional regionalism, I think, is... Um, is interesting because you kind of see it in like decentralization spaces or federated spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, with lots of flaws, which I've also <laughs> written about as well. Um, but, but, but yeah, I think regionalism and the idea of like finding, I think the role of the designer, firstly, we need to, at, at a base level, we need to, I think, deprogram ourselves as, as digital systems to creators as, uh, of, this, of this desire for everything that we build to scale infinitely. That's the first thing. Um, and then the, the follow-up to that is if you then regionalize it, um, is to then embrace the complexities, replace the concepts of users, for example, with the, the appropriate regional terms for the people involved in that system. And that region could be anything from a building all the way through to a subculture around the world. It doesn't have to be, like, as I said, um, doesn't have to be geographically based. But the idea of regionalizing things is, yeah, essentially to, to divide up real observed issues and then start to tackle those issues in partnership with the regions themselves. Interesting. So it, to help, my, help me understand a little bit better, so I, if I can use some examples. So like um, in, um, so like to, it, one that's coming to mind, right? So when I think about regionalism or, or sort of federated systems, I think about uh, making systems where it's easy for a community or subculture to kind of like have full control over a instance of that system. Right, mm -hmm. like you, um, and, and so one of the first ones that comes to mind. Uh, there's lots of different kind of like nerdy ones that exist. You know, these federated chat systems, and and even yeah. Mozilla Hubs. It's a you know VR, uh, a social VR platform that a bunch of uh, uh, past coworkers and friends have made. Uh, that you can kind of just spin up your own instance of hubs, and then you control everybody who comes and goes and what it looks like and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if we're looking at something that's kind of more common. How do you think about something like Slack, right? Like it does feel like it is federated in a sense where like a Slack organization is completely isolated from somebody else's. Um, but at the same time, I feel like maybe it's still encountering a lot of the uh, issues that, that, that you are sort of seeing with uh, so like flattening the, like treating everybody as users and sort of not caring about the individual subcultures. How, like how do you think about something like Slack? So it's really interesting that you say that because the best, uh, answer to Slack actually kind of exists in the form of Discord right. as an alternative yes. to that, right? And, and an if you look contrast. at the two systems, yeah, yeah they, they're the same concept. But what's interesting is how Discord treats the user right. or the, the, the individual entity inside that account and like how the digital identity works there. Uh, for example, in, in, it's a global namespace for one, mm -hmm. but also one that has a very rudimentary um, uh, digital identity inside of presentational identity. And so you kind of, when you mix that like with the ability for uh, different structures to form inside Discord servers, so Discord servers, you know, are really designed that anybody can start them. Um, they can expand or contract to as many or as few people as possible. They have automatically built in video chat, which is kind of like pushed as a core communication tool. Uh, all of these kinds of systems and the way that they're presented um, to a person that's entering into Discord is goes a long way to understanding the differences between how people are viewed by the designers of Discord, especially in the early days when Discord as a key concept was started, versus Slack and how Slack is seen. And of course, right. like well, because in Slack, you kind of your your account belongs to the organization or the group. Whereas in Discord, you right. have your own identity and then you freely and with, it seems much less effort, sort of dive in and out of community spaces, right? That's right. And, and it also prioritizes um, voice and video as a key mm -hmm. versus Slack, which is like, um, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I've ever taken, I mean, I know it's not true for everybody, but I don't think I've ever taken 
a Slack phone call before. I, I use it all the time. Quite but, a few of them. But that was, well, but, yeah. But it's different. But, but, it's, it's, yeah. There's a kinetic energy inside Discord. For example, if you have access to a Discord, um, firstly, the way in which, like, you can set on your own terms, like how you want to interact with people. So if you want to create a phone call, unlike Slack, which I think you have to do it as just like contacting people or a group, like a private group, and then pressing a button, and then there's like a call there. But in Discord, it's like in the sidebar. And mm -hmm. so if there's a call going on in a room, you can see all the people inside the call. Like you can see yes. that kinetic energy of the social space materializing there. There's, a, there's a, again, like a, a rudimentary social feedback loop there, like a the ability to see some kind of presence of people in that space. But at the same time, um, you as an individual have the control to lock down your direct messages. For example, if you're, you can lock it so that people have to be your friend, you have to verify them as a person before, like, you know, exchange some kind of hello friend request before you can speak to anyone on a, on a DM, or you can set that to like a, a server level thing. So only people who are on the same servers as me can message me or you, can you know live dangerously and let anyone message you? Yeah, I mean it's you know there's of course tons of scams and stuff on Discord. I'm not saying that it's a better network because I think fundamentally all of these systems suffer from similar issues. But I do think that like um, there's a reason why why Discord grew massively during the pandemic. I know Slack did too, but you know Discord went from being a niche gaming platform. I say niche even though it was big enough anyway to being like a a major player in the in the remote work environment, and the reason it did that was because um, it has this kinetic energy that like is lacking in these other spaces, and more critically, um, also the user the user accounts are disposable um, mm. because there's so little associated with them. You can just delete them and come back as someone else if you want to. Um, it doesn't it doesn't really matter in the same way as it might matter uh, about having like losing access to your Slack account or something like that. And, and, you know, just discord having like very programmable moderation, extendable moderation tools. So sort of further does that it, it, it forces people to regionalize from their own server, how they might, um, control who can access their server and how, like, if you, if you really look at it, uh, here's a really simple, uh, like regression, I think that we've had in the nineties and the early thousands, web forums were a major form of communication. They were regionalizations of the internet. Mm -hmm. As a result, um, uh, moderation was basically regionalized too. And the systems that built complex customizable moderation systems uh, were systems that then allowed for early internet societies to blossom, not necessarily safely, but in the ways, but in a, in a, in a variety of ways where the moderation of those spaces and the designers of those spaces were able to foster more accurately the kinds of communities they want. That doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happened, but it means that like they had a greater control over it rather than like these absurd, like hyper scaled incidences of, of harm being done on a, like weaponized design happening to, on a broader scale. And so, you know, Discord is an example of that. I mean, the onboarding of Discord is one of the hardest things to do with someone who uh, isn't fully invested in the platform when they when they come to it for the first time, but you know setting up a server is like a multi-hour job. Um, it's a huge deal, and it still grew massively as a result. And part of the reason why that is is because they gave design tools to the moderation that basically the people who run those spaces and regionalized how people interact in those spaces. The regions being the servers themselves. Interesting.
Yeah, because I, I, the reason why I'm poking at this uh, is because I, you know, I've, I've been trying to, uh, and I, and I understand maybe it's not uh, totally fair to all of our listeners who haven't seen all of your stuff, but, but you speak a lot to sort of like the importance of this sort of uh, designing for sort of local communities or sort of uh, regionalization. And I've mm-hmm. been trying to just, you know, wrap my head around when I'm trying to design my own, you know, projects and, and things, like what that actually means, right? Because it, it, it's it's difficult, right? Because it feels like in some ways Slack is more regional uh, because of the, you know, the isolation of accounts. But but that seems like a narrow interpretation that I don't feel like I don't feel like you're pointing at that necessarily being better than what Discord is doing. Um, and can you help me understand like why or if that's true? Regionalization here is in the in the sense of how can people express their and set the parameters for their digital system, their infrastructure themselves. And in the case of something like Slack, um, it's a it's a, it's a particularly top down heavy structure. Which you know, whatever that's like how certain business requirements exist. It's also bad. It's also objectively led to some pretty bad stuff happening on Slack. Um, mm-hmm. Workplace harassment right. um, that can't be ignored. You can't These block people of, on Slack. Yeah, that's right. These yeah. sorts of issues are really big, and so the point though is, is that like Slack is now locked into a, a a particular problem where by not setting those terms and not like acknowledging and embracing this kind of ability to regionalize. And I'm not talking about regionalism. I think to answer, sorry, let me just yeah. back up and just say this. To answer your your definition, as you sort of spoke it back to me of regionalism being um, based around the physicality of the account in a conceptual sense, like the account inside the system. What I'm sort of saying here is that, like regionalism on the how the the accounts, how how the dig, how the components of the digital system that you've designed work together in a context of a definable space, whether it's a subculture, mm-hmm. an apartment building, a a a class of students, whatever that regionalism is. It's regionalism where instead of looking at it from the systems perspective, you're stepping out of it and you're thinking of regionalisms from that relationship between two or more people perspective. I see. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because I, like, I think it requires uh, it requires a little bit more nuance, right? It's not just looking at what are the features that you would see listed on a feature page on a website or whatever, right? It's the sort of uh, dynamics and interplay between the communities that are like taking part in these in, in these applications. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and I and I feel like some of that. It, this is probably an oversimplification again, but it sounds like at least some of that comes from sort of the uh, uh, ability. So it comes from kind of like a combination of like the different settings that Discord offers and the ability for like and the sort of like raw dynamics of of what it looks like to be part of a server and uh, some of the UX design choices. So it feels like it's it's this sort of like um, holistic thing about a platform rather than a specific. Uh, set of uh, settings or or what what have you, right? Right, and it's 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 a balance of embracing complexity, right, mm-hmm. um, while still producing something that that has some hope of being used by people. I think what I'm trying to say here, ultimately, is that I'm pretty disappointed that we spent thirty years working <laughs> to uh, hide complexity rather than spending all of that same money building systems and tools for ourselves. And I mean tools as in like anybody who engages in the practice of designing a platform, whether you are a forum person, whether you are a like a forum moderator, whether you're designing a some kind of deeper infrastructural system that has, you know, messages exchanging, 
whether you're, you know, working in Excel, trying to develop a platform for understanding what you're going, what business decisions, whatever the situation is, we've developed these systems that hide the complexity rather than spending all of that money and all of that research and labor and everything on trying to uh, build tools that help us make sense of that complexity without just sweeping it under the, the metaphorical rug. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Interesting. I think so. We'll, you know, a really, sure. this yeah. is a really lazy, this is a really lazy example, right? But like the, the, the whole perspective of um, the, the Apple controlled ecosystem and like the desire to simplify those systems, make them right. so rigid that they fall, anything that falls outside a very small mm. range of tools is, 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 is bad. And, and this is of course, we're not going to get into this, but I just to like finish that point, like even things like the right to repair, uh, which falls outside of the goals of what Apple's trying to do. One can say, well, it's because they're greedy and they want to obsolete tools. It's an economic reason. Well, of course, everything's an economic reason for a company like that. But also, um, right to repair has a whole bunch of other complexities associated with it that their systems that they've designed over the past 15 years, especially in hardware and manufacturing, just cannot account for. Um, because it's it's designed around the absolute binding of the entire stack in a very specific way mm-hmm. in order to hide complexity. Ultimately, what yeah. Apple sells is the 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 hiding of personal computing complexity. Yep. Uh, it makes me laugh a little bit because that was the reason why I bought my first Apple device was because I kept hacking my Android phone so much that it couldn't take phone calls anymore. And so I forced <laughs> myself to get a device that I couldn't do that on. <laughs> You put parental uh, controls on your own. Exactly, device. exactly. Um, well, I think this is because this is a, another question that I struggle with that is connected to this. So you've talked, uh, pun intended, here. You've talked about sort of like connectivity being a liability. Um, yes. And can you speak to that just a little bit? Because I want to, I want to pull this into what we're talking about. So this this comes as part of a, a broader piece of work on understanding why decentralization will not win and is not really a good idea to chase as a political term, uh, as a political solution to centralized systems, at least as we see it today. Uh, And I wrote a piece about this called, This is Fine, Optimism and Emergency in the Peer-to-Peer Network. Mm. And there's a lot in that, which we don't necessarily need to cover today, but essentially the core thesis is that like, when you decentralize a platform, you decentralize the risk. And once you decentralize the risk, um, it puts everybody at risk when the centralized system and its collaborators uh, push back against that. And I use many examples, but the biggest one I use is how uh, the copyright reformist movement in the early thousands that kind of started with Napster in the late 1990s kind of reached a point where at one one point um, people were basically saying, oh, music labels and the movie industry will be dead in like the next two or three years because piracy is going to wipe out the creative industries as we know it as from a commercial perspective. And, you know, we were on our way to having, having that as a reality um, until um, BitTorrent came along in response to the Napster, like, group of platforms got sued into oblivion. And that system, its risk was decentralized. So rather than being able to hide behind lawyers that were run by a company or on retainer from a company, Hmm. uh, a peer-to-peer user downloading something off BitTorrent was almost certainly exposing their IP address and their activities on the big BitTorrent network. And so as a result, you could basically go after individuals. And because BitTorrent is a participatory network where you're exchanging information, sending and receiving parts of files, 
um, they could then, under the same kinds of laws of distributing copyrighted material for financial gain, you could be uh, on the hook for substantially higher damages if you were sued by a copyright holder. And so, yeah, people's lives were ruined, and it basically destroyed the the, the peer-to-peer system. And that's the basis, one of the many stories of the basis of, of, of like why decentralized systems are bad in a certain kind of way. And at its core, I think, which I kind of touch on a little bit in this piece, but we're sort of talking more deeply about it here, is that I think that connectivity is actually a form of technical debt. And I think that um, what connectivity has, has led to is a complete inability for engineers and designers of, of, of any kind of system, like digital systems, to understand how what the political ramifications are of connectivity itself. And also, more importantly, how the, 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 the act of connecting one system to another isn't just an engineering problem, but it's also, once again, a, a social problem. That there is, again, if you apply regionalism to this, there are different reasons why a person connects willingly and also different consequences based on that person's uh, connection to another machine whether or not it's uh, accurate or warranted uh, or even consensual. Like sometimes these machines just connect by themselves Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't have any control over that. And as a result of that, you can be on the hook for all sorts of stuff. And I'm meaning this in like really simple ways in a decentralized system. Like the act of, I mean, one of the biggest examples of this would be the act of connecting to the Tor network itself uh, in, in a lot of countries. It's just seen, just that itself is seen as a political um, antagonism. And the problem is, is that like, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the act of establishing a connection is not critically examined by really anybody. Um, it's seen as a digital security risk. So the idea of trying to um, mitigate the ability for people to observe some kind of actor to observe that connection or attack that connection, but the very act itself and the assumptions that we make around these, like around connectivity, I think we should, I think we would be, I think it would be profound if we were to collectively, as a set of industries, grapple with what it actually means to connect to another machine and what those political consequences and social consequences have emerged from, from that from that system. Interesting. I find myself, you know, it's funny through these conversations where it's, um, oh, I'm looking for the easy answer, right? Like I'm looking for the well, should I make it so that I have control over who joins what networks? Like, sh- should I be more like Apple or should I be more like the web? Right? You know, or uh, and yeah. I'm looking for these easy answers, but it, but it feels like, um, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like maybe that's the wrong way of going about it. <laughs> maybe it's just like a it's a much more nuanced and, and sort of complex question here, and you're sort of pointing at sort of things that we have to grapple with more than uh, prescriptions. <laughs> Would that be fair? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's really true. And and to be clear, I'm not saying I have all the answers either. Like what I'm saying is that like, you know, think of the consequences of connectivity itself. It, and this is why it's not a simple answer. Um, we have, for whatever reason, and there's been you could I don't think it's very useful to point to single um, uh, motivations as to why this has happened. But through the lack of examining or the lack of or the deprioritization of like assessing connectivity as a concept, um, that has a direct consequence of creating enormous data farms, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, hosted, basically like curated data storage um, that has some of the biggest (laughs) carbon footprints in in digital 
system. Like the, the, these, these, these systems of, of connectivity have like massive ecological footprints. And that comes about because we don't look at, we, we haven't examined the role of, of, of the act of connecting as not just a political concept, but an ecological concept. Interesting. It's uh, important stuff. <laughs> um, well, to, to, these are these yeah, are solvable, though. I think that's yeah. the thing that's really exciting. Is I think these are these are solvable. I think the first thing, really, what the New Design Congress is about is like is helping to to ask these questions and not yes. necessarily doing it from an antagonistic perspective either. I think these are really exciting questions. But it's yeah. about we have we have such a long history of <laughs> of there's a lot of prior work that's been done that makes systems when you're interacting in them and like working on them feel like they're it should be but in fact it shouldn't be and i think yeah i think rambling a little bit now but i think like the the fact that we've been disconnected so completely from much of the consequences of things like things happen uh, we, we we theorize if you're a systems designer of any kind you're you're theorizing outcomes and then the the outcomes that do happen come back at you in a deeply theoretical way you read about it somewhere or something it's very rare for someone to have to reckon directly with the consequences of their work and i think that what what some of these questions are and what i'm hoping that i'm doing even talking with you is is to ask these questions in a way that that stops it being abstract and makes it seem a lot more like connected to different spaces like where you can take some of these ideas what does connectivity as debt mean to you as an individual? Mm -hmm. I think that has a different answer to different people. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Uh, I'd like to, uh, and maybe I can just briefly mention these just to offer them as, as, as uh, affordance, and then we can dive into them a little bit later. But uh, you've sort of offered that. You've offered um, kind of designing for the worst case scenario. I thought it was interesting. Yes. So sort of like threat modeling your designs uh, and sort of having the intersection between security and design. Uh, and then I think uh, you also sort of talked about the sort of uh, confronting the the outcomes of design. So not only looking at kind of like the practice going in, but kind of having that retrospective or sort of, uh, you know, looking at what are the actual sort of, I don't know, utilitarian outcomes rather than just the sort of yeah. deontological sort of practices. Um, and I'm wondering if we can apply this because you were you were um, uh, uh, involved very early with with Signal. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I'd love to sort of talk maybe through... Um, if there was things that you were happy that you guys did going into Signal around either like connectivity or some of these other sort of uh, heuristics, or if there's things sort of looking back at it that maybe you wish that that you had, um, there's a very funny story about this which I've not actually ever told on a podcast before, excellent. or like really publicly anywhere. Yep. But you've asked me this; you're the first person to have asked me this directly. So mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Um, the, the the story of Signal is that I was working and getting very disillusioned in very early cryptocurrency work, like 2013. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to, at the company that I was leading, the design of this of this like Bitcoin exchange. Um, they, they had a really great um, head of security. And he's a good friend of mine. And he essentially, his name's Sam, it's Frenchy, Sam French, um, mm -hmm. in, in San Francisco now. But he, he was... I was talking to him and I said, I need to do something that's a little bit more uh, where the, the benefits are very immediate, where I can see exactly how I'm going to be helping like do this. And of course, 2013 is a time period in which like all digital security tech is terrible, mm -hmm. like really terrible. And so he said, well, there's this program 
that's coming up. It's called Tech Secure. It's on Android, and we're trying. They, I know the team is trying to build like a unified version of it. So basically, I met up with um, a guy named Frederick Jacobs, who now works on Apple's iMessage team, and he was one of the early iOS developers on Signal. Uh, and I made contact through their GitHub, and I did this. We did a work together really closely to build like a series of prototypes for Signal, and then basically built it all the way into a, a a fully functioning beta, which we released through TestFlight. And at the same time, there was a competing design, which is the design that made it into the early versions of Signal. Hmm. It's hard to it's it's easy to see Signal as a very comfortable app now, but when it was first released, it was quite rough. <laughs> um, but but one of one of the one of, basically, I went over to Hawaii and we worked. Um, there was like a team that did the final push of Signal for it to go, and there was a series of arguments there about like what Signal should look like hmm. um, and how it should work. And one of the things that I was defending nonstop was that I said that, that Signal should not use phone numbers as an identity source. Yeah. Uh, and I had designed this entire system of like, here's how I think we could do identity inside Signal. Uh, very speculative, so I'm not surprised that like um, the team rejected it. But um, but what I knew for sure is that a system that was meant to be trustworthy should not be using phone numbers because yeah. the social graphing of phone numbers was even to my sort of early design career mind, digital security mind was like very, very easy to have significant problems with that. Mm-hmm. And I lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and the, the version of Signal that went out um, was, I mean, it never made it into public production, okay? So let's be very clear when I say what I'm going to say next. It could have been a huge disaster what I put out but we put we put it into beta, and it made it into the hands of a lot of the security researchers at the time. And then that beta was withdrawn after a few revisions, and in its place was the version that became version one of Signal, which caused a couple of people to say very nasty things about Signal on Twitter, mm. essentially saying, "Why did you take this system that looks amazing and replace it with this new system that doesn't make any sense?" Yeah, and. There was lots of decisions like that. I think ultimately, though, like the goal of Signal and what it's turned into, especially the team that's working on it now, mm-hmm. is like it's it's really great. But it still has that reliance on on um, on uh, phone numbers. It still has. It still when Signal launched, I, I was a big proponent of um, of using safety numbers in Signal. That is like oh, this yeah, secure yeah. public key exchange you do to verify devices in the future. Um, I was a big proponent of yeah, if anybody making that front and center. That's awesome. If anybody Sorry, doesn't know what that is, it's just uh, it, it lets you know if somebody ever deauthenticates their signal, if they lose their phone, or if they uh, change something else. Someone attacks you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can you can sort of uh, you have a secret code that they also have, and you can read the words back and forth and, and sort of know when that has changed, or you can verify verbally that they're still on the same app. Yeah. Right? yeah. Nice. Yeah, so the the connection that you make in real life. So you meet up with someone and you say this is, you know, my my public key and you send me your public key and it's it's specific to our conversation in Signal. It's not like one that you share with everybody. Mm-hmm. As in like it's not one that you share with every conversation. It's unique per conversation or per per contact. What's really interesting about that though is like what the the, the, the safety number concept in Signal, which was deprioritized and removed and actually had to be brought back into Signal as an update because it turned out that, you know, you actually need this complexity. <laughs> um, that in a, is an example of a very rudimentary social, um, social feedback loop. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a digital security technique piggybacking off a social feedback loop. 
I like that. Yeah. Well, it's also funny. I don't know. Uh, there's something that's amusing to me about it. Like I haven't used it all that much, but like, I'm very happy that it's there and it makes me feel safer that it's there because <laughs> it's like, if I ever needed it, yeah. it's there. And, and, and also it's sort of like, in, it feels like it came tied to the uh, alert of somebody's number has changed. Right. And like that one, I, I value even more, uh, but it feels like those things are, are sort of like intrinsically tied. So it, it's sort of amusing to me how like a, maybe like little use feature can still have a lot of positive impact. And my point essentially is, is that that was a, the proposition that I made back in 2014, 2015, when we went through that, that design process was that instead of spending all of this time trying to shovel the complexity away from digital security, there's a huge, exciting benefit to making that comprehensible to people. Yeah. And taking that time. Because, yeah. because if everybody is, if, if everybody is using phone numbers, uh, sorry, if nobody's using phone numbers, but instead using exchanging safety numbers in order to like make connections with each other, then the entire safety of the network grows immensely as a result. I like that. But um, right now, yeah. if you don't use a social, if we talk on signal, if you and I talk on signal mm -hmm. and someone SIM swaps me, which is a very easy attack in which an attacker calls my ISP and yeah. says that I am, they are me and then gets a new SIM card issued and then contacts you, you have no way of knowing unless we've actually had a, a proper key exchange unless we've exchanged safety numbers. Yeah. Well, I will get that alert, right? It'll it'll tell me that your safety number has changed. It does now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Four years later it does yes, now, yeah. right? But it's not it hasn't didn't do it historically. That's makes the sense. Point. Yes, yes, makes sense. Uh, producer Nick is asking us if we can just dive a little bit more into that term social feedback loop. Yeah. Because yeah, I feel like it was a good example, but I feel like this is like a super important concept. So maybe we can just expand on that a little bit, like sort of like what that loop looks like or how we know if there is one or not. So I want to I want to come back to when we first started talking earlier in our discussion we talked a little bit about how one of the things we've explored is the the differences in in resolution of of devices when it comes to virtual reality so mm -hmm. the idea that when people are exploring VR together they tend to have social graces that they rely upon Whereas at the moment that people who are on keyboard and mouse who enter those same spaces, they are disconnected and do not have that same relationship. And thusly, it is more likely that someone who is attempting to disrupt a virtual reality space is doing so from a mouse and keyboard. That's an example of how important the social feedback loops are inside systems, which is to say, specifically, I'm going to dis dis describe this term specifically from these digital systems perspectives, but there are many ways that you could describe a social feedback loop. The act of the, the subtle cues of a person who views another person and, and basically uh, pauses their digital identity and their actions and their words in a physical way, and then uh, through direct speech or direct interaction and indirect speech, the act of like, micro expressions or the active just expressions themselves, these are examples of, of social feedback loops. And in their absences, I think a, a drastic, um, drastic failings in digital systems. So I think that there's a direct connection to the fact that a, a virtual reality space can be and is often disrupted from a harassment sense um, as a result of uh, uh, people entering 
where they are completely di- disconnected from the social feedback loops because you can't mm. show your re- when you have full body tracking or even just hand tracking, um, you can't you can't do the 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 kinds of you you have no presence you have no self in which a social feedback loop can be, can be carried through you if you're using a keyboard and mouse you are a static creature your arms are by your side you can't move them around the best thing you can do is move your head around and move about in this space with the keyboard like walk back and forwards and things like that whereas someone in VR has different different fidelities but at baseline that virtual reality person has a whole bunch of things at their disposal they can move their head and completely freely from their body they can uh, gesture at least rudimentary like they have like you know, low resolution in, in the context of maybe they can move their arms around, but then they can also you have systems that people have that are affordable, which can move their hands, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these things create these vehicles, these 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 spaces for um, social feedback loops to present themselves, which is essentially the the act of me being observed by people and then that observation being reflected back to me. And I think that has profound consequences for trust and safety not just in the real world, which is what we're trying to do when we talk about uh, emulating peoples through their movements in virtual reality, but also from a digital security sense. And I think that we have good, you know, our entire evolutionary system is based on using social feedback loops, this this idea of, um, of telepathically, if you like, communicating to people who know us very well, whether or not we are concerned about a third person who's watching us, who, who's in the room with us, or... Or even the the subtle act. I mean, the subtle act of like uh, um, uh, relationship building, whether it's uh, you know uh, romantic or friendship or even commercial relationship building. It's all based around social feedback loops. And then, from a digital security perspective, um, yeah, the 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 act of from a digital security perspective, things like uh, safety numbers are examples in which you and I have performed social feedback loops. We have met each other and we have determined that we are through those acts of like reading each other and our body language and and becoming not a rationalist identity where we are projecting ourselves with no feedback, but rather projecting ourselves and becoming a person in the minds of each other through these like bouncing of feedback loops back and forth to each other. That's then captured and stored in like basically a key, which is then Mm. stored on our phones. And so this is a little bit wordy, but what I'm trying to say is that like, these systems, what a, what a safety number says is that we have met outside of the system in some way. And as a result of that, whether we've called each other on the phone and spoken the numbers to each other, or we've met in person and showed each other our phones and scanned the, the, the numbers directly off each other's phones, we have engaged in a, in a we, we are now storing a fact that we have some baseline of understanding that we trust who the other person, we, we trust that the other person is who they say they are alongside the other role of the safety number which is of course to make sure that the device isn't changed or anything like that but on a more on a on a social level there's Mm -hmm. also this component of understanding that we've done this kind of this ritual together (laughs) yes and i do love that word um Because yeah, I mean, but it doesn't it tell you what hard. to do with it. It, do- <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I was just laughing at the complexity on this as you're talking about the different avatar interactions, because because um, it is so interesting. Because both uh, I, I I believe what you're saying around like it's sort of like easier for a keyboard and mouse user to kind of um, desire to express harassment or whatever, but it's also easier for a user with hands 
to be more viscerally harassing because they can do very uh, <laughs> yeah. gestures and stuff. Uh, but those are two different things. Though, it is. Yes, right. It like is, yeah. one, of, one of them, one of them is like, one of them has to do with the, the lowering of the stakes of harassment. And yes, I mean, they do two different things, but they rely on the same thing in order to be viscerally harassing. That says more, I think about you, at least it says more about the people who are viewing you in that social space. Mm-hmm. You have to be a lot braver of a person in a certain kind of way to be viscerally harassing in a virtual reality space. There are things inside our brains which stop a lot of people from um, be- behaving inappropriately in, in social settings, especially social settings where we're not particularly um, familiar with the people involved. And so for someone to overcome that, that's a really interesting. I would love to talk with you at another time or maybe even now about like uh, how you've tested for that and like what kinds of situations come from that. Because to me, that's that's the other side of it is like, once you start looking at social loops, it then becomes like, well, how does that change attack surfaces? And how does that change, <laughs> how does that change like the kinds of people who become prolific at attacking through those surfaces? Well, I can give a uh, example. I don't think I've done it on the podcast yet, but it was uh, something that was, um, it was the intersection of these social dynamics and uh, uh, digital systems that was very important for us to realize in this, which was, so it's this use case, or not this use case, geez, this sort of like uh, harassment style of, so I'm in VR. I have hand. My hands are being tracked in some ways, um, mm-hmm. and so you know somebody would uh, you know if I was the sort of uh, harassing party or like the harassing party basically comes up to somebody and you know acts like they're doing some sort of lewd gesture. You know they're, they're yeah. stroking something or whatever, right? Like in your face. Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, it's, (laughs) if somebody did this in real life, it'd be very disturbing, right? You know, so it is, it is a very unpleasant thing to happen. Um, but the thing that was interesting is we're like, okay, well, this is happening. So let's solve this by creating like a personal space bubble. So, uh, if you have this thing turned on, uh, nobody can sort of like put their, uh, appendages or, uh, objects that they're carrying, uh, sort of like within, you know, a, a meter of you or within a couple feet of you or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a remarkably difficult technical problem to solve, actually, uh, because now you're uh, <laughs> now you're uh, trying to do collision detection between every single limb and every single limb in the entire room, uh, and every single object and every single you know uh, personal space bubble, uh, and then also it becomes a very difficult question of. Uh, who is invading whose personal space? Because you have to like take like the velocities into account and stuff like that. Like, am I invading yours yeah. or are you invading mine? Um, and, and then uh, the so we were like, okay, we solved some of those problems, and we had to we had to like trade off like making people nauseous in VR versus like making it so that people couldn't make them nauseous by doing lewd hand gestures because the the it, it was very computationally expensive to calculate all these things, so it caused frame drops. But we solved that, so we're like, okay, we don't have to make that compromise anymore. Um, was it worth it? Uh, it was, yeah. So this is just for context. This was a social virtual reality platform that I was a founder of called Altspace VR uh, a number of years ago. Um, it's still around. Uh, Mike, we sold it to Microsoft, and they're they're rocking and rolling with that over there, uh, led by a really good friend of mine. Um, but uh, you you are you are making the case for what I've just been talking about. Yeah, you yeah. guys em- you guys embraced complexity we because did. you saw a social problem and you embraced complexity. This is and, and when you were talking through this, right, like. You're, you are exactly talking about like you. This is what you're talking about right here. Is I would I, I would love to do this. This is the goal of what New Design Congress is trying to do, That's but awesome. not just in VR, but like in all of these spaces. We should be having conversations like what you just said then about like 
how you had to essentially, for lack of a better term, move heaven and earth inside this system <laughs> yeah. in order to, well, because it is, it's yeah. absurd, the amount of work that's involved in it, right? Let's be clear. Um, but you, but it was, it, 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 what, what it did was that it produced a, a particular set of systems that then uh, basically allows people to engage with these spaces on, on their own terms. Yeah. You, you've essentially done a similar thing to what, um, what a group like Discord has done, where you give control of these spaces over in a certain way to people, and they can determine within their own space, or their own region, if you like, um, who to turn it on for and who to turn it off for. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just because I feel like you'll you'll get a kick out of the rest of the story too. So uh, one thing I'll say real fast, which is that. Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, so there's this sort of like, uh, you should have diversity in your company or whatever. And there's like a uh, ethical case for it, which I think is important. But I want people to know that there's also like a practical case for it, which is like, we never would have known this if uh, if we didn't have like female employees experiencing these issues in Altspace, because it never happened to me in there. <laughs> but it sure happened to our female employees. And so that was able to give us the visibility to try to tackle some of these problems. Um so I thought that was a really important learning. And then the other uh, thing that was, because this is speaking to the real social dynamics here, which is so like, we're like, okay, personal space bubble, somebody puts their hands in your face, their hands disappear. Great. Uh, we solved the velocity checking problems. We solved all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it still wasn't fixing the problem. And it was like, okay, well, it's not disturbing to the person. What's going on? Well, the people in the room were still laughing, Right. And so not only did we have to hide the harassing people's hands for you, but we had to hide, we had to network synchronize the hiding of the harassing person's hands and objects for everybody else in the room. So they wouldn't laugh at the rude hand gesture that you couldn't see, but everybody else could see. <laughs> and so it just, it, it was, it was a very complex problem, but it was, it was highly worth solving. And so it was interesting. Well, the, the lean startup model comes from the, the world that I was just talking about. It comes from uh, you build something as simple as possible. The, the Lean Startup model has a, a, a particular myth associated with it, which is that we will throw stuff away when we outgrow it. So the idea is that, like, you went, you know, it's this we're, we're going to prototype the thing, but it will never be the final thing. We're always like, okay, we'll do the first sketches of it and then we will like re rebuild it later or something like that. Uh, having worked myself either directly in or alongside in some sort of security or design perspective these these places the reality is is that and it's not even it's it, it's 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 only egregious in the sense that like this is only egregious what i'm about to say in the sense of that it's a lie that continues to exist even 20 year, or 15 years later like from 2001 let's say oh yeah gosh 20 20 years right but basically it's that um while we, we keep telling ourselves that, okay, this is a dirty prototype that we will replace, it doesn't take any complexity into um, circumstance or into consideration. The reality is, is that all of these systems, um, through the economics of it, prioritize that. What you're trying to do is startups, the startup scene is about building the cheapest possible thing as quickly as possible and then finding as many use cases as possible for that. That's what it is. And it's 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 a it is a it is a culture that has emerged in the gold rush of technology uh, that's built off of a number of things. One of them being that an assumption that the underlying tools that we have 
and the, the underlying techniques and the principles and the politics here are solid enough that they shouldn't that, that there's no deeper social problems with them or societal like scalable problems with mm. these with these tools and that um, any anything that did happen as well is just a lack of well, we missed this consideration or we missed we missed this edge case it's all defined as edge cases and and the point you know once it <laughs> that's a great quote it's all defined as edge cases it's all the, it's all it's every single yeah it's all defined as edge cases absolutely i mean yeah, that's actually that's actually. I'm going to use this one again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all designed. It's all defined as edge cases. Every single issue, and it's only the only time anyone ever moves on this stuff is um, from an economic perspective. Um, it only makes sense when it's no longer an edge case. But the problem is, is that like in in a social context, um, uh, those edge cases don't exist. The idea of what an edge case is in a in a system design perspective versus the edge cases. Um, for the like for an, a community of people, a region, in this idea of regionalism, uh, those are two completely different things. They have com- vastly different um, definitions, and and especially what's deeply unfair. And I think this might be one of the most compelling cases against um, the goal of scale in our current form. If you're also if you also have a goal of um, of producing digital systems that have substantially better outcomes than the world that we have today, then scale makes everything an edge case because scale means that any kind of, we've just talked about this for the last hour, any, anything that you look at, any, any, even the idea of calling someone, like not calling someone a user anymore, um, is to embrace the concept that there are edge cases because the user is the entity and the in the system that uses that, that's like operating the, the the website or the product of this the digital system, um, whether they're doing it directly or not, but really they're actually not a user. They're actually they actually have a context and they actually have like a person. And even just redefining the user as as something else in your system is like to immediately introduce edge cases into your system. And I mean that because like you know, if the user is a global user as a as a, an, an entity, a conceptual entity. Then anything outside of that user who fits that model of what the user is supposed to be, by definition, is an edge case. Um, and so that's that, that. Even from our fundamental language in these, like building these systems, it's all based around um, making as much as possible the edge cases. Interesting. Yeah, I, you know, it's um, yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because yeah, like with this lean startup stuff, you're like, okay. Maybe there's some like economic necessities here where, uh, yeah, I need to cycle through a bunch of ideas first, or I, you know, I can only survive so much on my runway or whatever. Um, but it, it, <laughs> there's this concept of like obliquity, right? Like sometimes, you know, achieving what you're doing is is best achieved not through like the obvious method. Uh, and so, like, it seems like those lessons are important, but. Um, uh, it has to be a balance with these other things. And you don't know, like, if you don't think about these things at the beginning, it's going <laughs> to quite possibly come back to haunt you. Uh, I, I know I've seen this, like, I have a bias towards over-designing systems in the beginning, but, you know, I always, um, it's, it's a question of how you're over-designing it. You know, I think some of these questions, like, even even with some of these security questions, it might take, you know, a four-hour brainstorm or something and be worth it way down the road. You know, it's not necessarily that this has to be a massive, massive project uh, on any given uh, thing that you're doing. Uh, but, I have... Yeah, good. Yes. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with you, and I think I would take that a step further. I think that there's 
what will emerge in the coming years in particular. And I think that without sounding like a like a, a doomer, because I'm definitely not a doomer, I don't think that the current model of how stuff is built, how digital systems are built, I, I don't think, I think there's more scope for alternatives to how these systems are built today. And I think that there are, like on the one hand, I deeply appreciate like what you're saying about, um, especially doing like the security brainstorming and things like that. On the other hand, like my my gut reaction to that is like that's only one in one small part of like a broader overhaul. Like the, the example that you're giving is like is one it, it plays a, a small role in like a broader overhaul of how we should be designing systems mm-hmm. and like and what should be on the table in the in the in the case of like questioning what those systems should do and and the reckoning there is a reckoning on these systems coming right like the as much as we don't want as much as it's uncomfortable to sort of think about it like this there are um there have been warning signs for a decade that that these systems have come to pass i mean even even recently like the uh communication outages in the united states uh in march and april of of 2020 as a result of um the infrastructure being decomplexified away from being able to load balance when everybody started working remotely or when the remote working class could remotely work, the people who were had the ability to do so. Um, even that is an, is an example of something where like the way in which we build things, which is directly tied to the way in which uh, capital funds or capitalism funds uh, and what it expects as a, as a return in terms of the, the baseline of how we see this infrastructure, this this economy, um, it means that we, as as we have these kinds of rolling issues, um, we have to change that. Like it just has to change. I mean, let me give you I, from again from my work. You know, you mentioned at the beginning of the hour, you talked about um, watching the design ethics no thanks talk that I've that mm-hmm. I've given. So an essay in, in 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 sort of a performative essay kind of medium. One of the, I talk about the context that I talk about in this is that I, I'm talking about how design ethics, that is the process of trying to train designers in ethical or design justice frameworks, is ultimately futile because design ethics is uh, unable to overcome uh, the requirements of working within a cap within a, this particular configuration of the global capitalist system. And so when design exists in, in, in service of that, then it makes no difference as to whether or not your team has uh, designs with the intent of ethics. You will always, not only will you always suffer within the, the tooling that we use, user stories, these kinds of things, not only are you up against your design being weaponized, regardless of how ethical your team is, because of the way in which we design for scale and the tools that we use that, which 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 the tools that we do that with, which kind of, remove the complexities and thusly basically decontextualize and depersonify and basically remove the regional structures that we need in order to understand how our systems interact with the world. But then on the other side of it too, is that like some of the trajectories that we hold as being and criticize as being um, desires for the future and and ideas for the future that we want um, are masked because what we're asked to do is, as people, as platform designers or as systems designers or interface designers, all the same kinds of people, we're being asked to, to behave ethically and thusly have a better outcome. And, and in, the, in the talk, in the essay, I describe the, what I can see as the, the fallacy of self-driving vehicles as a, a savior, as a, a core part 
of the the climate response. And I sort of I, I, I use this example of the moment a few years ago, maybe five years ago now, when um, a, an Uber autonomous vehicle hit a woman who was crossing in the street, dark street, mm-hmm. and killed her. And there's a there's dash cam footage of it. It's, it's an extremely horrific um, piece of footage. And what that what that spawned was this entire discussion about when a, a, when how does a how does a self driving car be ethical? How do we how do machine learning um, scientists and designers, um, platform designers or, or infrastructure designers, how do they design a system for a self-driving car that's, that's ethical? And that led to things like the joint research project. Nick, please help me with this. It's the, um, it was a, I think it was MIT, but I'm not entirely sure. There was a group that put up a website that suggested that you, um, you would ask people who went to the website who you would save in a, in a car it was like a trolley problem, but like it changed <laughs> oh, yeah. the, it changed the trolley problem. So it was like, do you kill a Shiba Inu or like, a, um, um, I don't know, like a, a sports athlete or, and by the way, when I did it, I was making sure I trained the algorithm to always save the Shiba Inu, right? But, the, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea, the idea behind this, the system is that like the ethics of the self-driving car are, are, are basically the, the way that it was explored. And I'm using a bit of a, 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 um, I'm kind of driving a point home with this thing. Yeah, moralmachine.net is the website for it if it's still online. Um, the moral machine, moralmachine.net is this, this thing where you can like train this system by telling you what you think. And the, the idea is to crowdsource a scalable cooperation. Thank you, Nick, which is this idea of like, okay, what does the society consider to be a, um, a, a what does the society believe to be a, um, what's the consensus on ethics? And so uh, the partnership was with Scalable Corporation and it's asking this question about um, about self-driving cars. The problem with this is, of course, is that like the, the, the rhetoric around self-driving cars by focusing only on this trolley problem, we're, we, we kind of fail to sort of dive deeper into the role of like self-driving cars themselves. Okay, so self-driving cars, if you trace the history back in of car ownership, Cars are one of the biggest terraforming devices we've had. In, in the 20th century, cities were unimaginably reconfigured for the purposes of driving. And there's a lot of reasons why that happened, some of it economic, most of it political. But what we have today is, um, as I record with you, this, this month, we, as of right now, as we're recording, there are some of the worst bushfires, worst forest fires in recorded history in Turkey. Two weeks ago, there were floods in four continents that killed hundreds of people, and some of them in very, very dense cities, um, like the western areas in, in Germany, uh, in China, in like densely populated spaces in China, in Oregon. Um, we are rapidly entering a, a period of history, which, by the way, has been driven by the adoption of cars. It's been accelerated by the adoption of cars, um, amongst many other things. Um, that a self-driving car cannot escape from. I mean, we can barely make self-driving cars. Just the other day, there was a uh, a paper that went around on Twitter sort of suggesting that um, self-driving cars have to be taught to be irrational because if they're not irrational, then they'll never get anywhere because you could just walk out in front of one when the algorithms are perfected and just stop the people in the car. So all of a sudden, you can just like, if it's if it's not trained to be irrational and sometimes hit you when you uh, step out in front of it, then people mm-hmm. always step out in front of it and suddenly you have... Um, footpaths, like highways are the footpaths because 
it's easier than like <laughs> yeah. because the car will always stop. And I'll take or this one step. F- you have hijackers, oh, yeah. Maybe you're going to say this. Yeah, yeah. hijackers yeah. is the same yeah. thing. Absolutely. I mean, that's the human to human attack surface, but on a broader level, like within each of these disasters, which have become more and more frequent over the last ten years, in particular, comes dash cam footage and handheld video footage of people driving out of forest fires. People, I mean, yeah, the the, the right. thing that made me realize this when I when I was first looking into this. Um, was the footage of watching people reverse away from the 2011 Fukushima disaster and tsunami. People in mm-hmm. like boxy Japanese cars, city cars, literally reversing, just throwing it in reverse and driving backwards as a tsunami bed down up- upon them. In 2011, that was considered like a freak swan event, like a black swan event. And, and we've had five of them in four weeks as we record. And, 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 and prior to that, you had the forest fire last, like before, around the time of the pandemic and just before, we had the Australian bushfires that killed like probably a third of all of the diversity in Australia and drove hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were holidaying over the Christmas holidays at the time to the shorelines in order to escape the heat of the fires. And then you had the exact same thing happen in California weeks later or months later as a result of that. Not weeks, months later. The point that I'm trying to make here is that like, we can barely make a self-driving car. We can, we can, we're still arguing over whether a self-driving car should hit a Shiba Inu or Olympic athlete. We're not, we're not even having this discussion of like, how can a car built with sensors that detect infrared and radiation and, and have all of these like echolocative services through them? And I'm using that term very deliberately. Um, mm. uh, how, do, how does that fare against a, 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 like a, a situation of burning trees and like red hot infrared lights that... Um, that overwhelm its senses. It can't possibly do that. What's or the collapsed alternative? Infrastructure. In- yeah. Collapsed infrastructure. Collapsed infrastructure. And I'm not even yep, talking yep. about this from a from a doomer perspective of saying things like, well, what happens is um, you know, that everything collapses around you. I mean, as I said, the, uh, the 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 floods in Germany affected a very small number of people, like in terms of the broader geography of, of Europe. But it was a rich area of Germany. Yeah. Germany is one of the one of the countries that would do something like roll out self-driving cars in wealthy areas. San Francisco itself, the place where they where a lot of these car companies are and test, is prone to accelerating forest fires. These are not these are not these are not questions of of like um, uh, of you know societal wealth or or like exploitation or regions that have been exploited by um, wealthier places. This is a situation which is deeply absurd, which is that the wealthiest places in the world that are also testing self-driving cars are subject to the kinds of disasters that they simply just have not designed for or even acknowledged in in their work. There is not a single paper that I've been able to find about um, how a self-driving car escapes um, a catastrophic flood event. And we had five of them in, in a matter of weeks around the world. And that makes me, I, I'm very passionate about this for a very particular reason, because to me, this is the end game in a very particular way of the combination of the lean startup model, mm-hmm. where we'll just fix the edge cases, and the, the role of ethics, in a sense, to depoliticize and to prevent people who are systems designers from deeply examining not just the systems that we rely upon to, to build our own art and to practice our crafts with, our, our, our trades with, but also inhibit us from um, making the same mistakes or basically putting cars out on in the context of self-driving cars, putting putting vehicles out on the roads 
that we should collectively be considering as potentially um, incompatible with the society, with the world that we find ourselves in, rather than trying to figure out whether or not we should ethically be, whether or not we can train it to be ethical. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, you know, I feel like we would it would take a long time to dive through all of the sort of complexities of those trade-offs. But but I feel like at a high level, I really appreciate the um, sort of missing the ethical forest for the trees uh, that I feel like you've you're pointing at here. And I've seen this, and you've pointed at a couple other places where I don't know if there's like a term for this. It's not really like greenwashing, but it's like justice washing or something. Where ethics it's like, washing, it's called. Ethics, yeah. yeah, ethics washing. Yes, where like the uh, sort of all the news articles about the facial recognition were about them being racist, right? Where they weren't seeing uh, different skin colors, and and yes, it's an important issue, but it it like the overfocus on that seems to uh, rid the conversation of the ethical consideration of its use in the first place. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and, and this, this comes back to, I want to tie this back specifically to how we're trying to use this at new design Congress, which is essentially that I would invite, um, algorithmic, algorithmic researchers who build these kinds of tools, especially people who have positioned themselves as, uh, uh, AI ethicists to, kind of borrow from this work that we've done in digital identity. As a, so digital identity, as you know, is a core component of digital security and authentication. It's a core thing. So if you're a proponent of digital security, then digital identity is a core component of that. And it's like something that's considered something unchallengeable. But in order to, de- my, 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 the reason I bring that up again here is to, to frame it from a very particular point, which is that, we consider that the thing that we're testing right now and researching is like, well, what if digital identity in a system is untenable if your goals are uh, more empowered societies and things like that? What if actually what we need to do is to completely remove digital identity and then alternatively fork it and start with something else, try something entirely different? But the question first becomes like, how much of digital identity can we remove from these systems before we start having like serious problems with the systems. And I would ch- challenge the same with, with, with machine learning, emergent machine learning systems, which is essentially how much of this can we remove? What if we start from the place where there is, there, there is, what if we start with the argument that there is no ethical machine learning and then work our way back from that? <laughs> I love like we it. start I love from the it. worst yeah. case scenario. I love the constant assumption questioning. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, we just, I mean, the point is, is that I don't think that like, it's really clear that as the self-driving car example shows you, um, it's the same problems, the same absurdities, but with like higher stakes and more like damage. And, And the more that this gets like normalized and the more that we continue in this direction whilst only really interrogating it on a surface level, the worse it's going to get, and it's just and it, it, it's 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 just going to get worse because the environment is changing around us in ways that these systems that we've built are unable to respond to. Hmm. And so and so the problem is is that like <laughs> now I'm like really ranting and I'm really passionate about this stuff, right? Please, because yeah. because the question the thing is is that we the thing is that excites me about this work is that there are definitely pathways forward, right? But we just don't know them because we've been stuck in these systems 
that have worked, have rewarded people. They've worked. Uh, they've they've helped people change the world. They've done all of these different things, and they also uh, don't work. <laughs> they don't work anymore. Maybe they worked a little bit before, but they don't work anymore. Especially, we know that they don't work anymore because we've just dealt with like the last ten years of it really, really not working. And the the what I'm what I'm so passionate about with this work is that when you if you just assume that everything is bad, not from a perspective <laughs> of being not from a perspective of being like c- catastrophizing it, but to free yourself from even the most compelling things like the the dreams of connectivity, the and I'm using this person, like I'm using this example quite deliberately. The the whole Earth catalogs like goals of of, of these reorganized societies and these kinds of things. Um, yes, that helped us get to a certain place, but the trade offs we are now experiencing quite substantially, right? We're experiencing them in our systems through digital security. We're experiencing them through the loss of control and the kind of the the deep centralization of power amongst these amongst major players in digital systems. Um, but on a broader level, we're experiencing it ecologically, you know, mm. in, in very, in, and it, it can even be in these really small ways, right? Like even things like it, it, how the, the systems are so ir- like so rigid and so unable to, to bend or change that uh, you can ask Siri for the weather on your phone during uh, the middle of winter and like I did it this winter, and if it's, you know, 75 degrees Fahrenheit in Berlin in December, Siri says to you, beautiful weather coming up. And you look at that and you go, <laughs> this is not that this is not beautiful weather. Like I'm expecting yeah. you to tell me that it's terrible because it's December and it should be miserable here. And the point being here is that all of this, when you add it all up at scale, when you yeah. when you add scale. And the surface area, like the if you look at it vertically and you look at it horizontally, um, it's all this, and it's it's <laughs> yeah. and it's messing with everything. That's the yeah. point. Oh my god! Because the, the, I had the exact same. Because I'm from Hawaii originally, and uh, uh, there's there's been a few times where I asked Siri, uh, "How cold is it today?" And she'll say, "It's 53 degrees today. It's not very cold." <laughs> I'm like you ass, like it is very cold. What are you talking about? <laughs> and it's the the, the, I love the and the, the cultural context is not taken into account. I lo- I love this. I love stories, and and uh, what that that's exactly the same story. And I'm I'm almost certain that everybody who's listening to this podcast has had an experience like this, where it's kind of been jarring, and that like technically what what their weather app has told them is true, but you're also like you know this you have a this is a, a you know, I imagine that the group of people who your audience is like a particularly smart people, especially when you consider, gosh, the people that you've had on this program before, right, on this podcast. And, and I, like, I, I know for certain that there's people who, who, who listen to this who have had that experience where they've talked to a machine about the weather and the machine has told them not to worry, the weather is just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, in fact, like summer weather in the middle of winter, right? And 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 <laughs> and, and, and the thing that's great about that is that, like, this comes to, I guess, the final major part of, like, I think what sets our work apart, at least for now. And again, like, it'd be super cool if, like, this whole point became obsolete. But I think we're onto something with this too. We've reached a point now in digital, the ubiquity of digital systems, that we can actually now use the interface as a key driving metaphor to mm. spark, 
to spark the kinds of conversations around deeper systematic and political structures that have the nuance that we want. And so when yeah, we like talk that. about things like, when we talk about the relationship between like the decomplexification of digital systems and Siri and how that relates to a self-driving car, um, basically handing over control in a forest fire to its frightened occupants, or um, which is an interface question, right? Because that's essentially what it would do. There's no other way in which you can, the only way in which you can make sure this doesn't happen is that you make it a manual. It's like driving an airplane. When, you, when you're a pilot, um, your airplane is autopilot, but the moment that it, it's uncertain about anything, it switches to manual, right? But the thing is, is like, we're not, you know, pilots are being trained all the time on how to continually fly planes, even if they never fly them manually for like, you know, the majority of their lives as a pilot, the, the majority of their careers. The same, like, the same can't be said for something like a self-driving car, because like we know, I've established in our discussion here that self-driving cars will be caught in all of these problems. And then the next thing to say about that is like, okay, this is probably going to be common, but people will probably not drive their own cars. So you're going to turn this over to someone who's had no additional training, hasn't driven a car for like a year or maybe more, and is now expected to pilot their families out in like a middle of a, like the hottest fire forest fire on record. And it mm -hmm. just, that doesn't make any sense. And the same, the same, that, that, that when you frame it from that interface question, it becomes very easy for people to understand the like the absurdity in the situation, and I think the same is true on a much more much less dramatic scale. When I say how it's when I ask you to when I implore you to like listen to Siri and be like, isn't it weird that Siri says to you that it's a beautiful summer's day, but it's the middle of winter? And the reason yeah. why it's weird is because these systems are failing us, and not only are they failing us, but they're poisoning us with like a completely surface level analysis of anything around us at the moment. And the reason why is because we have completely built ourselves a, a set of sensing layers on systems that do not tell us the truth about the world. And they don't tell us the truth because it's been designed from a perspective of like making this accessible or uh, like don't make me think these paradigms exist because of the work that has been done prior. Whether it's the shortcut of someone knowing who you are by looking at a, a graphic of you and a username on a social media platform, or whether it's sensors telling you something terrible but lying about it when it presents that information. It's all, it's all that's the case. And then the final thing I want to say about this is like the really crazy part about that is when you then get to things like, as you mentioned before, like facial recognition, then the role that the that like facial recognition plays in, in like state analysis of uh, and governance and like policing and things like that. This problem that we see in the interface layer when it becomes visible in the interface layer amongst people in consumers and, and like the, the general public is happening also at huge scale in our governance systems as well, in mm. policing, in public policy making, in all of these systems that we don't see all the time. Um, it's the same. You cannot tell me that Palantir is selling police forces digital interfaces that have uh, you know, digital systems that have interfaces that differ wildly from, from, from anything that we've talked about today, because it's just, it's, this is how pervasive the, the general structure of these systems are. And so when all of this to say that when we go back to when you said, like, when I said, it's all, it's all up for, for discussion and we need to consider all of it as bad. The reason is, is because of how deeply it, like 
permeates through through our societies because the, because you can easily if you're working in software or, or a particular kind of hardware um, or any kind of protocol design or any kind of system on these uh, within this this kind of approach you can shift between anything from making small websites you can shift to a, a a surveillance industry job you can shift wherever you want like the 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 the, the skill set is so transfer transferable because of the way in which these ideas have permeated through societies, that it, that it, then you know it's affected everything, including things like the employment, the, the widening of employment opportunities for people who work in these systems. Yeah. I'm bouncing around a lot, but it's like again, I'm yes, super yeah. passionate about this stuff. I, and I think and it's it, important people recognize that how I mean, it's easy to get sort of blinders on what sort of work you can do, right? But a lot of these skills in design and engineering, all that kind of stuff, are very transferable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I. Uh, uh, you can, is it, I just, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were, as I was preparing for this today, thinking about these sort of like limits of ethical design, like, you know, how much can you do by just like getting designers to be more ethical or making these kind of small changes was, I was a little dismayed to recognize that. Um, so one of the things that I've, I've been so disappointed at for so long was that um, uh, Netflix uh, mm -hmm. still has their leading metric is engagement, right? They're, they're, they are quote unquote competing with sleep. Uh, and this is how they drive their business is how long are you watching Netflix? Hmm. But it's a damn subscription service. It shouldn't matter, right? Uh, and yet they have, through their magic of internal metrics and reviewing, decided that the more Netflix that you watch, the more valuable it feels in your life. And thus, that's the only metric that they really care about is how long your eyeballs are on Netflix. Um, and the thing that made me a little sad is, you know, so I recognized this earlier, but then I started realizing, man, I've been advocating for this like Facebook subscription thing, but like, it's not going to fix that problem because they're still going to care about engagement metrics. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're taking my money or not, because they're going to come probably to the same conclusions. And so it really was pointing me towards, wow, we just really need to question a lot more of the sort of core basic assumptions on this. These sort of surface level fixes probably aren't going to do all that much. Can I, I, I love that you just said this because like, this is an example of something that I've been thinking about a lot too, very recently. Can yeah. I um, pitch something to you that's like a, something that we've been, probably we'll start like really looking at maybe early next year as part of some of the, the work that we're doing into interfaces. So this Please. is like kind of untested. So be a, don't be kind on it, but like yeah. just be aware that it's kind of underdeveloped. So are you familiar with Uncanny Valley? Yes. Yeah. So for uh, the people... The people who who are listening who aren't um, the uncanny valley is this it's a it's a model a, like a, I guess a sociology model where or a psychology model where you look at you look at a a, a an inanimate object or a, a non human creature and the closer that they resemble a human the more that you empathize with them and and project human qualities onto them and this like raises the if you imagine a two-dimensional plot, like x-axis is like closeness to humanity and y-axis is emotional um, empathy response, it mm. kind of goes up and up and up and up and up. You get to like, you go from like a non-humanoid robot that has the human qualities to then like certain kinds of animals and then like blah, blah, blah. And then like you reach like humanoid creatures, like humanoid objects, like uh, Boston Dynamic robots that are like move like humans or certain kinds of other robots or like corpses and, and people like even corpses, like dead humans and it craters 
suddenly yeah. you go from like this empathy response and then suddenly it's just immediately like fearful uh uh fear response against that and then once you yeah. get back to human it then like comes back up the other side i have my my, my if you imagine that graph but instead of um the x axis being the likeness to humanity or to human features human qualities and the y axis being empathy i have this theory that there might be this 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 thread where like the x axis is like amount of data that you have about a situation or a system and the mm -hmm. y axis is like how informed you are about the situation <laughs> and i have a i have a i have a theory that like that the same graph like you get to a certain point where zero zero is like completely uninformed asked to make a like a, a, a assumption about something like asked to make a statement about something you know nothing about and then there might be like primary school education generally and then like more specific domain knowledge and then you might have like expert interviews and things like that and then you get into like data science and you might get a little bit more and then you reach like a certain amount of data information and then like it craters like your ability to respond or like understand the situation just like drops it's not just it doesn't plateau but you like get worse at predicting things or worse at understanding something substantially and then you come out the other side where the other side where it dips back up again uh, into the positive is like embedded in the space like actually there on the ground and so the reason why i think that is is because like if you look at these systems of, of extraction i think that there's a relationship between uh again complexity and how we pause for complexity in interfaces and how that then drives when you start to bring all of this data into these systems um how that then has to be paused in order for a human to understand what they're looking at and i have this basically i have this this my general hypothesis right now is that like i think it might be better to um have less data in general and rely on the human like imagination or human inference skills to get across that line than it is to try to fill in the gap with that like you let that you if i my my theory is that there might be this thing where you leave an intentional gap about the data in a system and in like human intuition can like get you that edge of that gap with a higher degree of like uh accuracy in a sense yeah i think uh, i think that's absolutely true uh and i feel like i want to overlay another like a graph on the same uh axes but with a <laughs> why being like uh, uh amount of bullshit <laughs> you know like at, or at least like as the understanding goes down the amount of bs that's possible goes up like i i've just seen this in companies where it's like like so I started off by like just being like, no, I need to be Steve Jobs and design this thing beautifully and I know everything and then I'll do that, right? And then I was like, oh, no, okay, like data-driven design, there's some things here. Like like some things are not obvious and then like you will miss a lot of like, you know, errors and user experience and stuff like that. But I think you're totally right. As you continue to get that and just like A-B test the hell out of things, you, you, you like you, your ability to like BS decisions that aren't actually right goes up and the... Um, like uh, your ability to fall into local maximums dramatically rises, right? Where you get stuck. Uh, yeah. And so it, yeah. it feels like it's a balance, but I definitely think you're right where like you keep going too far and it just, uh, it bottoms out your ability to innovate. Yeah. There, I mean, what we're talking about now is bureaucracy, right? But yes. we're talking about data bu bureaucracy. And so <laughs> yes, data bureaucracy, like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so the issue, the issue that you have is like, it's, it's, so my challenge is like, okay, what if, I mean, you know, economics aside, because we all know that we're kind of in like a weird period of, 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 of corporate finance right now, but like, what if, yeah, like what if everything that, that groups like, um, 
Netflix are doing um, is, you know, it is absurd that their that their motto is or their their corporate apparently their corporate guidance is based on their PR communications is we're competing with sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that's a profound statement uh, and it's a predatory statement and it could also be completely um, not not misguided not, not like driven by data but misguided by data it might be like it might be that there's things coming in the future that like totally knock them out because of like the, the situation i mean like one threat i mean i hate speculating over this but like one one example of this might be so the quality of netflix shows is going down over time because of like people remember the early netflix stuff that they finance as being like the core thing but now like the biggest complaint about Netflix is there's nothing to watch on Netflix anymore. And so like, there's this, you know, there's already like signs showing just in a unscientific way of like how they've engineered this to the point where like no one actually watches anything. And the only reason why people keep watching stuff is because the interface makes them continue to watch stuff. So then the question becomes like, okay, how bad does the the content need to get the data driven algorithmic content before the interface like Band-Aid that's currently being, you know, the same as like right. the YouTube autoplay thing. Like these are two separate things that are like poisoning the data sets against each other. And like how long do we get? And already people are talking about like it's a meme about about Netflix, about having nothing to watch, right? And so this is, this is yeah, this yeah. is an example. It's a speculative example of what I'm talking about, how you've got these systems where like the complexity is there, but no one wants to engage with it. Um, and instead, what we're going to do is talk about the diversity in our company and how we put out really amazing, um, you know, technologies as a result of that. And the problem with all of that is that, like, as a designer, the number one question you should, the two questions that you should have at Netflix is like, one, how am I poisoning the culture of filmmaking and, and TV watching through my design work? And two, is how am I poisoning the internal metrics and how other people make decisions based on the, like, the, the data that our interfaces generate as like a, an interface designer? Those are the two most important questions about how you can like literally move the needle about ethics. If you're talking about, if you care about ethics inside Netflix, the ethics will come from how your work actually positions the company's like Overton window and its third eye as to how it understands its um, its data. And, and ethics is just as important if you're poisoning it with like a bad feature um, than it, it, it does with like, diversity or with um, uh, uh, fighting against dark UX patterns and so forth. The, 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 the one I keep coming back to always, and I'm going to kick them because I, I can't stand this, is, is, and I use this in my work, is the, the Spotify team, the design team, which is like made up of a bunch of people who are an incredibly smart group of people and think that they're like, they have like this whole part of Spotify.design, the website, and they talk a lot about how they're actively rejecting dark UX patterns and they're going to have this ethical system of design. But, you know, Spotify is actively pushing huge amounts of the music labor, like creative labor into poverty to the point where I participated as part of New Design Congress uh, at the UCL London um, College of, of the Arts um, in a, a, a series of roundtables, which is still ongoing as to how the United Kingdom's creative art scenes, particularly music, can actually um, break free of this dual tyranny of um, of UK austerity and the like, the external economic pressures of companies like Spotify, in order to basically ensure that the U- UK cultural output actually continues because it's that dire there. And so, wow. on the one hand, you have like these people. It, incredibly smart 
like these are people who 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 do incredible work, but they're having this conversation about the ethics of their work. It's also poisoning, you know, taste and all that. Like the, the interfaces do, like influence the algorithms, all of this kind of stuff. But then on the other hand, while they're talking about how like they're striving for ethics, the exact model, the the entity of Spotify, again transferable somewhat to something like Netflix, um, the entity that these that these people exist in, these teams exist in, um, basically have unified. Um, the creative industries in ways that haven't even historically happened, even with the copyright wars. Interesting. Because everyone, everyone in the UK outside of a very small number of people uh, have had their livelihoods threatened significantly. Hmm. That's wild. <laughs> it's, and I'm, you know, it's, it's, um, I'm sure it's difficult for them to figure out how to make incremental changes to fix that too. Right. Like it's not, these are not easy problems. Well, yeah. I mean, I, it, it's not easy, and and I'm not. Yeah, to be very clear, I am. My condemnation is specifically around two things: one, the inability to see that reality of what I just described. I see. That's a, that's yeah. something that's contemptible, and the other thing is the this the 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 aspirational desire for building ethics inside of a team whose fundamental structure is unethical based on its economics. It's it, uh. it definitely that. Deeply related, but all of this. Like, my my point basically is, is that these these have what we need is is tools for like people like that to break free of that. And yes, there's not it's, incrementalism might not be the answer. Um, I think in the case of something like Spotify, like we're now bouncing around quite quite randomly here. But the point here is that it might not be incrementalism. It might be that there's other interventions that need to be made in a company like Spotify. I mean, in the U.S., we're already seeing this in other forms of big tech, like, you know, the talk of antitrust, the right to repair bills, these sorts of things are all coming into effect now. Um, but I think my point is that, like, the mistake that people have made is that we see, you know, these kinds of tech interventions as, like, they're different, I think. Yeah, actually, this is a really interesting point. I've just talked myself into, like, another way of describing this, which mm -hmm. is that historically if you look at the, the differences between antitrust during the Microsoft era, where they went against Microsoft for bundling Internet Explorer and trying to basically control the internet through this, it's like the late 90s where they were trying to extinguish different web browsers and, and control the internet through, through Internet Explorer and the kinds of antitrust that are happening today. The antitrust that's happening today is like a particular kind of complexity that has manifested in like monopoly and like, mm. In, in the sense that like these, of course, there's predatory concepts here, Facebook buying Oculus, um, different companies buying different startups and trying to like consolidate. But within that too, there's complexities that emerge. And I keep coming back to it, like the right to repair in, in, in devices um, is as much an economic problem as it is a, an integration and, um, and interface problem. Right, it's all it, it's much more complex than just co like looking at these structures and saying and condemning them from the same historical perspective as you would with the previous tech antitrusts because of that yeah. complexity. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I um, well, you know, and uh, antitrust aside, because some of these monopolies are big, I, I do think it is worth highlighting. You know, both in the case of the Netflix having sort of uh, anti-user like interface patterns. Um, and uh, 
and also with uh, Spotify not paying the artists, mm-hmm. these these failings are uh, opportunities for competition, right? And recognizing that seems useful if we're thinking about what we're going to build. Uh, I, for one, would. <laughs> well, no, definitely. Uh, yeah. But but the, I guess the, the, the flip side to that, once again, is like we will just repeat the same issues. That's This is the point, right? Like if we, we do need competition and we do need these like alternative takes on these spaces. But until the problem is, is that we have a systemic issue around uh, a particular configuration of uh, tools, practices, and uh, a depth of political engagement or, or critical engagement in systems that we need to challenge. And so what I would like to see is um, competition that also engages in alternative forking at a deep level, yes. not just making another, not just making Spotify getting competition from Apple with Apple Music or or another streaming service of which there's a hundred of their only difference is like what's on the streaming services. Instead, what I'd like to see is like proper deep alternative forking going back 25 years, 30 years and starting again with these systems. That's great. So let's use that as uh, kind of our, um, our, our sort of way that we're wrapping up here, which is sure. I'd love to get some thoughts from you on if somebody finds themselves trying to create a startup or if somebody finds themselves maybe in a position of, of some sort of influence at a company that they're at, mm-hmm. um, a technology company, say, um, how, how would you want people to you know, help out with this or, or sort of uh, take to heart some of the lessons that you've shared today? Hmm. So there's a number of, that's a really good question. The biggest, I think the biggest the biggest way that I, I, I mean, sorry, this is a really interesting question. I'm trying it to think is, of. Yeah, and take your time. There's, and... <laughs> there's like half a dozen things in my brain that I could think of. Um, so the challenge here is to respond to this without making a determination between like incrementalism and full blown antagonism for much deeper or faster change. Sure. I think that. The biggest hurdle that we that we will encounter here without good alternatives that are tangible are problems like it's hard to get people to believe in something like a digital identityless secure system if they've never seen one before. So that's mm-hmm. why we're trying to prototype that, even though we're not a software company, we're advising and helping to build these prototypes. I think that there's a the the, the next step with what we're trying to do is to develop with groups, again, this idea of regionalization, mm-hmm. different ways of producing that, that kind of change. And, and I think it's like, the, the, I guess the reason why I'm hesitating in answering that is because what I can't give you on this podcast is a single answer that will work with everybody because that yeah. also goes against like what I'm saying. I'm talking about regionalism as being like an important thing. Yes. Some things will work for certain <laughs> yeah, people and others, others won't. I think the number one, like the, if you wanted something like that, though, the well, one and thing it, I it might even be sure. prompts or questions that people can ask themselves or whatever. Yeah. But yeah continue. So the, the one that I can say for sure is that um, the moment you start thinking about digital and operational security as, and incorporating like the concepts of like, I don't know, even things like socio technical security, which is the, the act of. Uh, looking at digital security through the lens of the relationships between two or more people in a system rather than the devices. So like, how does my app get harmed? Like, how does my app harm people? It's more like 
what are the relationships between the people in my app and people outside of my app. Um, as an example, those sorts of things, the, the kind of stepping back from ethics and instead looking at things from, from these evaluations of, of, of relationships, the, the embrace of, of regionalism, uh, where you acknowledge the fact that you are operating in a deeper, more complex system and that, 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 there's, that that's actually a struggle that we need to consider. These, I think, are beginning stages to, I guess, change company culture in a very profound way. Mm. Instead of looking at things, obviously, things like diversity in teams will help tremendously with that. But I feel like what's happened with corporate diversity in the past has been to bring in people who can speak up about certain kinds of things, but then to take that body of, of work that we've just talked about for the last two hours that like helps to prevent us from thinking deeply about, not deliberately, but it's just how it is because it, it's easy to, it's, everybody's trained in it. It's like, it's, it's like the, 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 the core narrative of, of these industries. But by, the key is that team diversity, that instead of having a focus on ethics as a transformative project, Instead, it sees ethics as an, as, a, as an expected baseline for the team and then sees this questioning, alternative <laughs> forking, as like the, the, the provocation. So rather than seeing diversity and ethics as the provocation for like shifting the Overton window of a team, instead you see your diversity and your, your ethics as the bare minimum for your team and then concepts like alternative forking and threat modeling as your provocations. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, (laughs) It's, yeah, stop kind of looking at as this thing where you just kind of have to do it to not get harassed on Twitter, but as as a thing which you are doing for the intention of creating these, um, uh, would it be provocative sort of changes or or sort of, uh, yeah, I'm trying to find the right phrase there, but. I think, I think. The the main issue here is that like we're about to enter, we're about to, gosh, I've been talking about this for so long. Um, We have entered a period of significant change and unrest. I think that there's an economic case to be made inside any uh, platform or digital infrastructure custodian, whether or not it's a a nonprofit or a commercial venture or a startup, um, to build this kind of resilience into your system. Because whether or not you believe it, whether or not you're someone who needs to feel like that you've done the right thing to sleep at night or whether or not you're driven by profit and, and by, by economics, neither of those two things uh, by themselves are, uh, you know, I'm not making a judgment on either of those. People are motivated by different things to get through the day. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that like we're entering a period where both of those motivations and the key assumptions that we have around these systems uh, are in direct conflict with the world that we find ourselves in. And so there's now a space where like, if you are able to build that kind of resilience into your work, at least at the very least, like, you know, your system will like, if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it and like eventually beat you to it. (laughs) Or, um, if you care about this stuff, then like you not, not, not sort of examining your work like this collectively will then, mean that the work is part of a deeper set of problems that will unfold, I think, in the next five to 10 years. So it's not about, again, I'm not talking about catastrophizing. What I'm saying is that like things are shifting and that the systems that we have and the tools that we use to build them 
do not line up and have never lined up. It just happens to be that we've, you know, the end of history, we've been in this period where things haven't really changed all that much. And so none of this, none of this tooling, none of the conceptual thinking that we've had that's been so successfully deployed commercially, uh, none of it is ready for any of it, like for, for what's coming, unless we actually acknowledge that and again, go back to the foundations and really push against those foundations. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's try to get ourselves a little bit ready for what's coming. I, I like the prompts. And um, if uh, on just like a more, um, you know, tactical or on the ground level, uh, are there any things that you're looking for with New Design Congress? Are you guys looking for uh, partnerships? Are you guys trying to hire anybody? Are you guys looking for donations or investment? Or Yeah, yeah. Gonna- so there's two things. One, we're doing an ongoing um, study into alternative economics inside capitalism, specifically from the perspective of um, economic uh, economic models and, and communities that flourished during the pandemic. And we've got like a live stream series we've been oh, working yeah. on, which you can visit at stream.underscore.re. So stream underscore, stream.underscore.re, where the underscore, um, that's like one of the projects we're doing. You can also find it on our website, newdesigncongress.org. But the other thing too is like, as we start to prototype these ideas, we've got the digital identity one, but we have some other ideas around connectivity and things. We're definitely looking for interested parties who can either help inform this work or who, um, yeah, have like a, who, 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 who think that they might gain from this perspective and might want to either work with us or in, in a, in a uh, academic or in a, in a collaborative sense or um, from a financial sense, definitely. So yeah, um, <laughs> newdesigncongress.org, come and visit us. We're working on a bunch of really interesting stuff right now. And um, it's at a point right now where it's moving from concepts to like testing these concepts now. Fantastic. Well, it's hey, a really exciting you, time. It is, dude, it is. You know, there's challenges, but it is It is definitely an exciting time. And um, I, uh, I just want to thank you, Cade, because um, not only has it been a pleasure today, but I feel like you have uh, opened my personal Overton window on the stuff a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's, yeah, I, I wish you uh, much uh, luck and success with, with all your work there. Gavin, Nick, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. All right. Well, you have a wonderful uh, rest of your weekend and I uh, hope to talk soon. Thank you. And thanks for listening. This has been great. All right. Take care.